This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but it's it's good. It's good because today he's going in for his long-awaited surgery that uh, he keeps complaining about this, you know, gallbladder problem. I <laughs> shouldn't make light of it. Um, he gets to go in today, so we're we're grateful for that. Send him a tweet. Send him a, a text. Just send all your positive energy and prayers his way. I'm sure he he'd appreciate that. And uh, you know, maybe he could do well uh, to celebrate International Yoga Day today too. Oh, not Yoga Day. No, it is International Yoga Day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just relax, Dr. Matt. Take a breather. Watch a lot of Netflix shows. I guess that would defeat the whole purpose of relaxing and listening to yoga music. But uh, maybe he can take a selfie while he's in the hospital, too, because today is also Selfie Day. And, uh, Cole, I don't know if you knew this, but there was actually a TV show called Selfie. Nope, you're educating me. It didn't uh, last very long, and in fact, I never watched it. Why would I? I, Obviously not if it got canceled. But uh, yes, we do wish Dr. Matt well, and uh, he'll be back Monday. We've also got some more movie news for you, since we don't get to do our movie show on Friday, because we, we thought Sports Nation is doing such a good job that we decided to donate an hour of our show to them. Um, but I know I, I glanced at Terry's papers while they were sitting in the printer. So I know one, at least one of these stories he had printed out. So I'm going to let him share this bit of news. But uh, it has something to do with a Star Wars film. Yeah, leave it alone. Okay. I won't say anything else. Big news coming up. Yes. Yes. Uh, we've, we're also going to be speaking with Lindsay M. Harris, who's going to be posing the question, is the U.S. immigration court system broken. Very interesting and important topic coming up later on the program. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Maybe we'll get that Star Wars news out of them. So uh, Republican Karen Handel has defeated Democrat John Ossoff as the special congressional election runoff in Georgia. The campaign to replace Tom Price viewed feverishly, as it says, as some kind of of referendum against President Trump ended up being the most expensive house race in history. $50 million between the two candidates spent. Republican Ralph Norman won Tuesday's special election in South Carolina for U.S. House seat, uh, defeating Democrat Archie Parnell in a solid GOP 5th Congressional District, apparently in South Carolina. Uh, Very, very low turnout. As these elections usually are, the special election usually doesn't get a lot of attention for some reason. And yet they spent $50 million. In Georgia. Oh, my goodness. In South Carolina just had really bad turnout, apparently. Wow. So I'm not sure what the numbers were on that, but that was the reports. Uh, Travis Kalanick resigned as the CEO of Uber after shareholders of the ride-hailing service demand his ouster. They demanded his ouster, the New York Times reports. Investors reportedly delivered a letter to Kalanick on Tuesday entitled Move Uber Forward, in which they demanded an immediate change in leadership. Kalanick, who helped found the company in 2009, will remain on the board, but has agreed to resign as CEO. Uh, I love Uber more than anything in the world, and at this difficult moment of my personal life, I have accepted the investor's request to step aside so that Uber can go back to building 
Rather than being distracted with another fight, he said in a statement, his uh, parents recently died in a boating accident, I believe. He's mm. trying to deal with that. Plus, yeah. Uber's been embroiled in all these sexual harassment claims and legal oh, challenges. The, the kind of uh, corporate mentality has been to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Mm-hmm. So they'll go yeah. into a new market and just let the cars loose instead of, you know, figuring out is this, do we have to go like, you know, are we considered a taxi company? Do we have to be regulated like a taxi? And they just didn't care. They just put it out there and then the wow. states would sue them and they would try to figure it out later. And that kind of a mentality got ahead of them. And that's when you get the sexual harassment claims, you get some other problems going on. And so they're, mm. uh, they're trying to get an adult to run the company is kind of the, <laughs> the idea out there. So we'll see how, how Uber goes. And it's a it's a huge company, billion-dollar company. It's kind of changed how many people travel. Wouldn't that pe- be funny if that was the one and only, uh, you know, job description on, you know, oh, you just have to be an adult. Just have to be an adult. And but the job is yours. It's the same. I mean, a lot of companies do this. You uh, Facebook, they put someone in charge that knew how to run a business. Yeah. Right? And so at that point, all of a sudden, Facebook took off. Before, it was just kind of a guy that rolled out of college with an idea. Yeah. And they need someone to help him shape it. So that's kind of what they're trying to do with Uber. Um, Amazon, they uh, came out with the news recently that they had uh, put $13.7 billion towards buying Whole Foods. That made headlines last week, but the LA Times reports that it may not be a done deal as previously believed. Amazon agreed to pay $42 a share for the grocery chain, but those shares closed at more than $43 a share Monday. That means investors expect a higher bid to come in with one expert calling it highly unlikely. Potential bidders include Kroger, Albertsons, and Walmart, and while it's unlikely anyone could outbid Amazon... Its competitors have an obvious interest in making Amazon's takeover of Whole Foods as painful financially as possible. So oh, they sure. Can, you toss in a counter bid and make them up their bid again so they have to pay more money. Now, I know Albertsons is your store, That's is their say. slogan, but there's no way they could outbid Amazon. No, but you could make a competitive offer and make Amazon rebid so they have to spend more yeah. money just to kind of put the kind of the knife in there a little bit. So comedian Jim Gaffigan tweeted, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one being overcharged by Whole Foods. Right. right. <laughs> He's got a great bit on, on Whole Foods. But uh, I'm uh, reading all these articles. So we're trying to see if we can find someone to talk about it more. But uh, just the idea that Amazon doing that would make all the other grocery stores maybe lower prices. To try to compete, because Albertsons, what they what they try to do is they get into a new a new market, a new industry, whether it's grocery or clothing or shoes or whatever, and they just sort of drive the prices down until the competitors give up. Yeah, and then it's their market. And I was hearing somewhere saying that in the grocery market, all they would have to do is get about twenty five percent of the national market, and it would really cause problems in the grocery mm. industry. So. You know, it'd be interesting to see if Amazon would want to do one of those Whole Foods stores where there aren't any employees, where you can just well, grab your groceries and kind of like what they're doing with their pilot program right now. Right. And now they don't have to actually build anything if they buy all these stores. They're right. 400 locations ready to go. But I mean, obviously, they're going to keep the Whole Foods name and brand yeah, yeah. and all that. Yeah. But then maybe incorporate some of those things we saw in that test store they had in Seattle. Interesting. See what happened. Now, finally, the news you... Alluded to at the beginning, <gasps> Phil Lord and Christopher Miller announced on went Tuesday that they are stepping down as directors of the Star Wars Han Solo spinoff movie. No! It says, unfortunately, our vision, <laughs> that means, well, many people, I was reading online last night, now it's ruined. The movie's 
it's ruined. There's no way to come back from this. Your directors are gone. So they say, unfortunately, our vision and process weren't aligned with our partners on this project. That would be Disney. Yeah. Uh, we normally aren't fans of the phrase creative differences, but for once, this cliche is true. We are really proud of the amazing and world-class work that our cast and crew of our cast and crew, they said in the statement, Lord and Miller previously directed the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street. There are reportedly still several weeks left in the shoot. So they're right in the middle of the process right now. And it's unclear who currently is in charge of it. The film is set to be released May 25th of 2018. I read this morning that one of the rumors of someone to take over this project is Ron Howard. Hmm. I'm not sure what that would be like or mean, but. Well, he does, he has a sense of humor, I guess, because he was the narrator in Arrested Development. Right. Um, but, I mean, they had, they, had, they had the same problem with uh, um, Rogue One. They had several directors come through that process. It wasn't the that original person. Know. And it was, again, kind of a vision idea. What, what the original idea was wasn't what Disney wanted towards the end. And so, you know, they shifted that way. So, so I don't know. I wonder – I hope they get some kind of credit – for this film, I don't maybe I don't know if they'll end up as the directors listed on the. Oh, probably not though. I would think. You know, it's know. interesting. You mentioned the Lego Movie, mm-hmm. Twenty One Jump Street, right. Twenty Two Jump Street. Mm-hmm. Those were all huge hits. You would think at a certain point the producers would just trust your vision and your way of doing things. Is is Star Wars a little too sacred? Is that kind of its own thing that you could have directed Citizen Kane, and yet if you touch our Star Wars movies, you're going to do it our way? Well, from what I've read, it kind of seems like Disney's approaching it the way that Marvel is doing it. Because you see the same thing in a lot of the Marvel movies. They go through directors after directors because it's, yeah. this is our vision. If you don't want to do our vision, we'll find someone who will do our vision. This isn't for mm. you to come in and tell us how to do our character is kind of how Marvel looks at it. And so I think Star Wars is kind of the same way. This They come in. This is what we want to do. Then the director comes in. Well, let's try this. Well, no. Okay. And then they leave because the director wants to have their creative input and maybe they're just overly protective of their characters. You know what they ought to do? They should just have the producers direct the film. Well, (laughs) yeah. I got a bad feeling about this. They're just convinced that they can find a director who will do it their way, not not the way the director wants to do it. It's it's really a shame because it seems like a Han Solo movie, and Han Solo does have such a great sense of humor – would have fit so well with those two directors. So right. it's kind of a shame. What was uh, the the movie Wonder Woman that just came out directed mm-hmm. by Patty Jenkins? She was one of the original directors for uh, the second Thor movie. Okay. And she, Which I did not see. She walked away because her vision for it wasn't what Marvel wanted. She wanted to do like a Romeo Juliet type of approach. And hmm. they're like, no, we have this Infinity Stone. We need to progress the story. So do it that way. And she's like, eh. So Disney I don't know. just needs big generic action movies, big generic blockbusters. Whenever right. Edgar Wright comes in and tries to make Ant-Man a cool heist movie, mm-hmm. he steps away because they can't handle that. Same Patty Jenkins had that. See, I, could, I, I can understand that, though, because they're, they've got this overall you know story arc yeah. that yeah. they're trying to build. But with... Star Wars, I mean, yeah. there are all these splinter films, and it's not like they're all, they're one, you know... It's a one-shot. This is the story. Yeah. You do it this way, but they seem to be very protective of what's going wow. on. Wow. Wow. Though they still had those big, what, Force Awakens had that big 
gobbly monster in the that Han Solo was trafficking around the Oh you know? right. Yeah, yeah. You're like, why you got slime monsters in the movie? It didn't <laughs> I watching that I go, this doesn't quite work for a Star Wars movie. I mean the only monster they really had was that that pit that Jabba the Hutt was trying to toss. Oh, yeah. In the original, to. it's not a monster. That thing scared well, me as a kid. And then the other one was in the the garbage chute in the in the Death Star. They had some monster down there that was eating the garbage and tried to take on or, uh, Luke Skywalker. Remember that? That's so, right. Other than that, I'm like, what kind of monsters did they have in this movie? Before then, the special edition, though, the Sarlacc was just spikes in a hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was nothing coming out of it. It was. Yeah. It, they just fell in. Oh yeah, and then George Lucas had to go and mess it all up. You know, it'll be interesting to see how Captain is it Captain Phasma, the 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 woman, the silver stormtrooper. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how she survived the trash compactor. Because didn't they throw her in there, or they said that they were going to? Yeah, they'll probably just not address it because huh. it'll be a different director. Just moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, just you got directors and difference of opinions, and but then the internet just runs away with the fact that you're just you're ruining it it's all over yeah. you know and you, you'll never recover and everyone's worried and it's like settle down you know cole mentioned big generic uh blockbusters mm. the new transformers movies coming out on friday not good reviews but it's a transformers movie but you'll go see it right no i'll watch <gasps> it later i never i've seen the first one and i think the second one in the theater and then i kind of went okay i like them but they're pretty bad so yeah, I'll, but- I'll catch it later, and I, I just sit there, and I just can't I, – I understand when people criticize these movies, but nobody cares. They're going to make a billion dollars on this movie because <laughs> the- you have robots, and they're fighting other robots, and people just enjoy that for some reason. The acting, yeah. it's almost like the humans are in the way. Hmm. Right? I mean, you got Mark Wahlberg in this, right? That's yep. the Wahlberg. That's, he's not necessarily the greatest actor in the world. And uh, he, when you watch, it's all cutscenes for the for the humans – and then it's all about just robots transform and, you know, roll out or whatever. That's the, the you know, tagline. Yeah. It's one of those films where the robots are more interesting than the humans. Right. They should just move the humans out of the way. Just don't step <laughs> on them because you're trying to be the good guy and then, you know, fight the movie. But Cole, are you going to go see Transformers the last night? Not for $10 in a theater. No. <laughs> well, maybe you could go on the discount Tuesday I'll or catch something. it for, what is it? Two and a half on Netflix or whatever, dollar fifty, whatever. I get the DVDs on Netflix. Sure, mm-hmm. and you get those, and it's pretty cheap if you look at it that way. And apparently, Mark Wahlberg doesn't want to do it anymore. Well, he's probably looking at maybe Transformers is dragging his career down. It's not just him this time; it's actually the movie he's. Transformers in. is getting ready for their big universe too. There'll be the Bumblebee spinoff. That's right. And their oh, whole I can't wait for that expanded thing. <laughs> wow. Well, that'll be exciting for someone other than. Us here at the Matt Townsend Show. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we return, uh, as promised, we're going to be speaking with uh, Lindsay Harris, who's going to be answering the question, is the immigration court system broken? Very interesting uh, and very important topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we have a shortage of law clerks, judges, and asylum case officers to assist people seeking asylum and people who don't want to get sent back to their home country. 
Even if we hired 300 more asylum officers, it will still take us uh, to the year 2020 for us to get through all of our backlog. Is our immigration court system broken? Well, here to speak with us today about this is Lindsay Harris, who's an assistant professor of law at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. She co-directs the Immigration and Human Rights Clinic. And uh, prior to joining the faculty at UDC, Professor Harris spent a year with the American Immigration Council, focused on efforts to end the detention of immigrant families seeking protection in the United States as part of the CARA Family Detention Pro Bono Project. Lindsay, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here today. And thank you so much for your time. This is such an important topic, and uh, we appreciate your insight on this. So, first of all, I'm curious to know, what exactly does asylum mean? So that's a great question. There's a lot of confusion around it, uh, but particularly because yesterday was World Refugee Day, this is a really good time for us to be talking about that. Um, So asylum actually means that you have met the refugee definition. So somebody seeking asylum is seeking refugee protection. And asylum is for people who are afraid to return to their home country. The home country cannot protect them, or sometimes it's the home country, the government, that is actually targeting them. Um, So they're afraid to return to the home country because they've already been persecuted or they fear persecution, bad things happening in the future. And it has to be on account of one of five reasons. So because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or something pretty messy, which is called particular social group. Oh, my goodness. So how do these these people (laughs) apply for asylum in the U.S.? So that's a pretty complicated question, too. There's a few different ways you do it. Um, Some people come here with a visa, with a valid visa. They come in as a tourist or on a student visa, for example, and then they apply for asylum after they get here. Um, Some of those people, they weren't actually afraid when they left their home country, but something happened after they got here, maybe a regime change, and then they have a need to seek protection. So they file a form. Uh, The form's available on a website, and they file it with the Department of Homeland Security, and eventually they get an asylum interview. Uh, right now that can take anywhere from two to five years just to get that interview, to talk about their case and figure out what they're afraid of and whether they should be granted asylum. So that's the, one way. Yeah. Is there another way? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of other ways. Another way <laughs> is if people are here in the U.S. and are undocumented. You know, we have, it's estimated, more than 11 million undocumented people, people living without the immigration status. Um, and they are apprehended by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is known as ICE. That's the, uh, the kind of uh, cold acronym for the enforcement wing of the Department of Homeland Security. So if ICE picks you up and catches you, finds you without papers in the U.S., then they will put you into removal proceedings, which means they put you into immigration court. Um, and some of those people, if they are afraid to return home, they can file for asylum as a defense. Um, to their removal from the U.S. So that's called defensive asylum because it's, it's their defense. Like in criminal court, you have various defenses. Their defense to removal is that they're afraid to go home and they file for asylum. And then there's one more way, um, which is actually a way that has, uh, uh, we've seen increasing numbers of people coming through this uh, channel to seek asylum. And that is people who simply come to the border. They don't have any legal papers to come here. Um, many of them actually walk up to a Customs and Border Protection uh, post and ask for asylum protection. Uh, wow. These people right now, we actually have people coming from all over the world to our southern border, many from Central America, from Honduras, uh, El Salvador, 
and Guatemala, but also from people come from West Africa, um, Central Africa, uh, and travel all the way up through South and Central America and come and seek asylum here. Um, so they show up at the border and they ask for protection, and they go through a pretty different process. Um, they're immediately detained, for example, and then they have a kind of screening interview. If they say that they're afraid to go home, they're entitled to a credible fear interview to figure out kind of, you know, is there a threshold eligibility that they can establish for asylum? And if they pass that interview and get a positive result, then they get in line to present their case before an immigration judge, um, which, again, can take many years to actually uh, wait for that hearing and have your case resolved. You know, this is just the, the more you talk about this, the, the more I realize just how scary this is. I mean, you mentioned somebody coming to visit the United States and then something happens back home and all of a sudden they, they can't go back. I can't even imagine how scary that would be. Or even, you know, I, I did have a brother that uh, that served an LDS mission in uh, Honduras and, mm-hmm. you know, he had to be evacuated out of Honduras and moved over to El Salvador. I mean. But for somebody who that's their home and all of a sudden, you, let's say you're, you're waking up in the middle of the night and your parents or your loved ones are saying, we've got to go. We've got to go now. I can't even imagine how scary that must be for them. Right. So people are often coming without a whole lot of documentation, right, or, or financial resources to support themselves once they get here. Um, if somebody is fleeing in the middle of the night to save their lives and lives of you know, their spouse, their children perhaps, and they don't necessarily come with the means to financially support themselves once they get here, um, if they're lucky enough to get in and, and seek this protection. Okay, so and you may have answered this already, but I just want to clarify. So let's say somebody is in the waiting process to find out if, if they're going to be able to stay in the country. Do they get to stay in the country while they're waiting, or do they immediately get sent to detention centers? So usually they they get to stay. Um, Whether they're detained or not depends, Um, and that's a discretionary decision that the U.S. government has. Um, Since the election, we have seen increasing numbers of asylum seekers held in detention while they wait for the adjudication of their cases. Um, Technically, anyone coming in without documentation has to be detained for a short time to determine, you know, who they are and whether they have a claim for asylum. But then if they can kind of establish who they are, they should be released on parole and allowed to pursue their case um, while living in our communities. Uh, But again, you know, this really depends. And we have seen ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, Department, uh, exercising discretion to detain people for longer And when you have asylum seekers in detention, that does pose a number of issues. Uh, Some of these individuals have already suffered extreme harm, torture, beatings, detention in their home country. And so putting someone who has is living with the results of that kind of trauma in a detained setting again can often pose a a number of problems. So, Lindsay, I'm I'm curious to know, uh, typically, how long would a person remain in a detention center before they are either deported or simply released? And then also, what are what are these detention centers like? So those are good questions. The detention centers are, um, many of them are jails, um, have been former jails, uh, for example. And the time people are detained really depends. Uh, detained asylum seekers and detained immigrants should be on a faster track uh, for for processing of their cases, but our court is so backlogged that they often are spending several months in there. Or there are some extreme examples. Right now we have um, 
moms and children who have been detained at a at what's called a family detention center in uh, Berks County, Pennsylvania, in Leesport, Pennsylvania, and they have been there now for more than a year, some of those families, including kids like toddlers, two-year-olds. Um, I'm thinking of one kid who's been detained since October 2015. So he's coming up, he's more than a year and a half of, of being held in this detention center. Um, that one is a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little friendlier. It's a former residential nursing home, but it's still a secure facility, um, you know, with dorms that the detained families sleep in and they're not allowed to leave. There are guards, um, but, you know, it's, it's still a deprivation of liberty and people are, um, in that setting, not held behind bars, but definitely behind walls. So I'm I'm interested to know. I I read this article uh, that you wrote, and I'm I'm curious to know a little bit more. We we talked about how scary it it would be for somebody to have to leave their country or or realize they can't go back to their country. Talk to us about this uh, credible fear interview that is conducted. So that's an interview that usually happens within a few days of someone entering the U.S., or it should do by statute. It should happen very quickly. Um, and it's supposed to be a non-adversarial interview with an asylum officer. And right now, we've actually been, um, in the last few years, we've been sending asylum officers from the eight asylum officers nationwide down to the border, down to Texas largely, where we've been detaining um, you know, a lot of immigrants and families uh, to conduct these interviews. And they can be anywhere from, you know, 45 minutes an hour to three hours long. Um, and it's really just supposed to be a, an interview to see whether someone has a significant possibility that they could be eligible for asylum. Um, and the officer can either say, yes, it looks, it looks good. It looks like they have a credible fear of persecution. Um, and in which case they are typically um, now released, um, sometimes with an electronic ankle monitor on their foot and allowed to pursue their claim. They stand in line in the immigration court to get their hearing. Um, and it can take two years just to get an initial pleading or scheduling hearing, and another couple of years to get the case actually adjudicated. Um, so they're kind of living in limbo in that time period. That's... Or the asylum officer could say, I don't think this person has a credible fear of persecution. Um, and in that case, unless they seek review before an immigration judge, which they have a right to do within seven days, um, then they would be quickly deported. It's actually called, the process is actually called expedited removal. So swift deportations is the idea. We, the government, create, Congress created expedited removal to get people in and out of the U.S. very quickly, unless they have a valid basis to remain. It's so interesting because in some ways it almost sounds like they're in prison or they're on house arrest. That's so interesting. Um, it, it sounds like these these credible fear interviews are, you know, they don't last as long as as you would think, and it also sounds that uh, it sounds like most of them go through and are approved, and and these people get to stay a little longer, right? What are the numbers on that? Yeah, most of them actually. I mean, especially the the numbers that we've been seeing in the family detention centers, uh, and these are women and children who the government picked up. and And prior to two thousand fourteen, we didn't actually used to detain them. We used to just. Um, release them on parole and send them before an immigration judge to show up to, to proceed with their case. Um, but now we detain them and, and subject them to this credible fear process. And um, But the numbers are really high. When I was working in this uh, field and, and back when the government was telling us the numbers of successful uh, credible fear interviews, it was like 85 to 90 percent. Um, and then by the time you've gone before an immigration judge to get some of those erroneous uh, denials overturned, 
especially more like 95% of these families are granted, are found to have a credible fear. Um, and that's really reflective of the mess that is going on on the ground, the humanitarian crisis um, that is occurring right now in Central America, uh, with extreme levels of violence perpetrated by gangs, very powerful transnational criminal organizations rather than gangs, to be honest. Um, and also very high levels of abuse of women, r- really extreme levels of violence against women um, in the household and outside the household. So it's not well, surprising to me that most people pass that interview. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, this is, thank you so much for helping us understand more on this uh, complex issue. L- let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the numbers here and how much the United States is spending and the number of employees that they currently have and, and what it would take to, to get rid of some of this backlog. So we'll take a break. When we return, we'll continue our discussion here with Lindsay Harris, who is an assistant professor of law at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Lindsay M. Harris, who is uh, an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us about the current immigration court system and, and whether or not it's broken. And we want to get uh, want to dig a little deeper into this topic with her now. And Lindsay, I was hoping that you could, first of all, give us some of the numbers uh, that go into this process. How much money is is currently being allocated to Homeland Security, and where is that money going? So the amount of money that has been allocated for immigration enforcement in general has really expanded in the last, let's say, 15 years. So uh, since 2002, it's quadrupled. It was about $4.5 billion in, 2000, in 2002, which is a decent chunk of change. But in 2016, we had $20.1 billion allocated to immigration enforcement. So that means the people out there working on the border and within our borders, picking up, apprehending people who do not have legal status um, or or prosecuting um, people who have violated the terms of their immigration status perhaps by committing a crime. Uh, But during the same period, the resources for immigration courts, and pretty much everyone has the right to go before an immigration court before they are removed, um, have actually only increased by 74%, so not you know 400%. So what we're seeing is a huge backlog in the immigration court. Uh, right now, it's close to 600,000 cases. It's you know even wow. since I I wrote an article on this earlier this year, and I think we were at about at 525. Now we're at 598,000 cases. Um, backlogs in the immigration court system. And those cases are divided between 326 judges. You're kidding. Oh, my goodness. So why yeah, why so few? Um, so one of the problems is definitely hiring takes a very long time. Um, the Government Accountability Office actually just issued a report to Congress on actions needed to reduce these case backlogs. And one of the things they found was that it takes almost two years to hire a new immigration judge. Um, the system that the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the piece of the Depart- Department of Justice that adjudicates these cases, that the 
HR is just very slow. There's a lot of background checks, a lot of different steps and um, checks to the process. And, of course, we, we want to make sure that anybody that we're putting on the bench to make these life or death decisions is going to be a good judge. Uh, but two years to get somebody new on board is really quite uh, a delay. Um, the other issue is just, you know, the funding. We don't have uh, the funding uh, to add enough immigration judges to really make a dent in these really backlogged dockets. Uh, immigration judges themselves will say part of this is the complexity of the law has developed um, over the years, and these cases take longer. Um, you know, more people are seeking asylum with very complicated claims that take a good amount of time to adjudicate, you know, three or four hours on the record with testimony and opening and closing statements and direct and cross-examination. These are real cases in, in a very much court-like setting. Oh, my goodness. So what was that number again? 300, how many judges? So three. So they just appointed 11 new judges this past week. That was announced last Friday. So that brings us to 326 immigration judges. And they're spread between 58 immigration courts nationwide. Um, but those judges have <laughs> to work through almost 600,000 cases, more than half a million cases for just those 326 judges. Wow. So 326 judges, half a million cases. Do they, are there other types of cases that are heard in immigration court? Yeah, there are. So we've been talking about asylum, so for people who are afraid to return to their home country. But in immigration court, you're really going to see anybody who uh, is undocumented here in the U.S., so people who don't have any legal status um, and may have other claims for protection. It might be asylum. They might be eligible for some other things called cancellation or removal or other forms of relief. Um, or you may also be seeing people who are lawful permanent residents. We usually refer to them as green card holders. Um, and they may have violated the terms, essentially, of being a green card holder, a lawful permanent resident, um, and perhaps committed a crime that renders them deportable. So they put them into removal proceedings as well. So but, it's a whole range of people that you're seeing uh, in immigration court, from somebody who just has no papers, has been here for you know any number of years, um, but has no basis to remain, to people who have been here lawfully, um, but perhaps um, committed a crime or been charged and convicted of a crime. Uh, and then asylum seekers, too. So are these separate from the asylum cases, or are these in addition to the asylum cases? That's in addition. So the backlog is oh the 600,000 cases includes all of those different folks in there. Wow. And only 326 judges. Uh, I'm curious. I, I don't know that the, the U.S. government would ever do this, but... It would a possible it wouldn't be you know a long term solution by any means, but obviously there are pro bono attorneys. Can there be such a thing as a pro bono judge that can oversee some of these cases? Uh, so we have sometimes brought back in retired immigration judges to try and deal with the backlog, but this backlog is worse than it has ever been. So it's probably going to take more than that. And one of the frightening things is that close to 40% of the current judges of the 326 judges we're talking about are actually eligible for retirement. Oh, no. Uh, so at any point, those guys and those, you know, civil servants who've been serving for some time um, could decide to take retirement, and then we're going to need to replace them, you know, as quickly as possible. But again, the hiring seems to take quite a long time. 
Oh, my goodness. So, okay, so it's not just a problem with uh, insufficient judges, but now what about the asylum officers who are working in, in these detention centers and conducting these credible fear interviews? Do we have enough of those or are we, is there, you know, are we still missing out on a number of those as well? Well, yeah, we have about 500, I think in February, there are 527 asylum officers, and they work in eight different um, asylum offices nationwide. So they're a little bit more spread out, but there are more of them. Um, And we have actually been authorized to hire as many as 625. But again, the hiring and training of these officers to actually get them on board and, and hearing, you know, conducting interviews takes some time. Um, and that the huge numbers we saw of credible fear interviews at the border, which was, you know, over 60,000 last year, means that people are being diverted from their ordinary work and going down to the border to conduct these other types of interviews, these credible fear interviews. Um, so that, that creates a backlog. So you're seeing in asylum offices like the Los Angeles Asylum Office, for example, from the time that you file asylum to the time you get your interview to determine whether you're eligible, uh, it's almost five years. Oh, my goodness. So, oh, okay, you, you've talked to us a, a little bit about why this whole system and this process seems so inefficient. So now, what are some ideas that you have for fixing this? How can we improve this, maybe save some money, get these cases through a little faster? Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one of them would be increasing access to counsel. So there's a few reasons to increase access to counsel. Uh, one of them is from the immigrant's perspective being, of course, that levels of relief being granted are much, much higher if you have representation. This is a really convoluted and complex system. And so having somebody who understands that to walk you through it is really important. Uh, there was one study from uh, an entity within Syracuse University that found that kids in immigration court are 17 times more likely um, to succeed, basically, with an attorney. So 17 times more likely that you would be be granted relief. Um, so that that's one advantage to access to counsel. But the other advantage is when you have lawyers working on these cases, they're effectively screening them for the judges and working through the legal issues, negotiating with their opposing counsel from the government, um, and so there's some efficiencies that can be gained from additional representation of people rather than individuals going into court who don't speak English, who, um, you know, are trying to advocate on their own behalf, but half that really don't understand the system. So judges have to spend a lot more time figuring out, like, what is the story here? Does this person have any claims for relief? Um, if we can push that to the attorneys, there would be some efficiencies in the system. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Matt Townsend is is at the doctor today. I've got a doctor's appointment today. And one thing that I've always noticed is how silly it seems to me that I I arrive, I fill out all these documents, and then I'm, I'm in front of a nurse. And the nurse asks me all these questions that I've already answered on the papers. And then the doctor comes in, and he asks me all those same questions that the nurse asked me <laughs> and that were on all the forms. And one of the ideas that, that I noticed that you put here in your article is that, uh, you know, um, we shouldn't be asking asylum seekers to present their cases before both asylum officers and judges. And I'm, I'm just curious to know, how much time could that save if we were to just have the asylum officers do that? And how much money would that save? 
Yeah, so just to clarify, I mean, asylum officers do grant asylum every day. They have the power to do that um, with the people who come in and are here legally and, and file for themselves um, or, you know, are within the, our country's borders and they file for asylum. Asylum officers every day will adjudicate those claims and grant asylum. Um, if they don't feel like the person deserves asylum, then the person gets sent to immigration court. Um, but with the credible theory interviews, that's where you're essentially um, telling your story to an asylum officer and then having to wait several years again to tell it before a judge. Um, asylum officers are trained to grant asylum, so my thinking is if they come across somebody in a credible fear interview and they spend two hours with the person and they fill out the case and it seems like a really strong case and they know that if that person was back in their home office, right, in um, you know Miami or Virginia or New York or wherever they came from where they conduct their regular asylum interviews, they're called affirmative asylum interviews, if, if that person meets that standard, then they should be able to just go ahead and grant asylum rather than making them go through this whole process and wait for, you know, however many years to see a judge. That's quite duplicative. Um, and it does seem like that could, uh, certainly if we had done that uh, with uh, all of the strong cases, I don't know how many of them asylum officers would have felt comfortable granting, but we could certainly see, you know, potentially more than 100,000 less cases in the immigration court backlog um, at this stage. And wow. I don't know how the financial resources would work out. Yeah. You know, Lindsay, one thing we haven't talked about in, in this interview is what, you know, let's say I'm an illegal immigrant. Uh, what sort of rights do I have? So I would prefer to use the terminology undocumented just because I think calling a human being illegal is hard, right? Um, they have violated our civil laws, our immigration laws by being here without documentation. Um, so, yeah, somebody undocumented um, you know, does have certain rights. They do have the right to go before an immigration judge if they're removed. Um, there is this process called expedited removal, which the Trump administration is very interested in expanding. Um, right now, it, it typically operates as if you've only been here less than two weeks and you're within 100 miles of our border, then we can very quickly deport you unless you have a fear of return to your home country. So unless you have a fear of persecution, of torture, then you would get your credible fear interview and go through that whole process. But if you don't, then typically you can be moved, removed very fast. Um, now, the current administration have talked about expanding expedited removal to people who have been um, in the country for two years or less. Um, and so that, you know, and anywhere in the country, so not within 100 miles of the border. Um, so that would, that would really subject most of those, a lot more people to expedited removal. And they wouldn't necessarily have that chance to go before a judge unless they have a fear of return and a potential asylum claim. But typically, if you've been here, um, you know, more than two years, certainly, then you have the right to go before an immigration judge and to assert any defenses you have to your, your removal from the country. Lindsay, just in closing, is there anything that the average citizen can do, whether it's just helping those who are undocumented immigrants or refugees? Obviously, there are you know, all sorts of donations that we can make, but what, what can just the everyday citizen do to just become more educated or to help out? Yeah, I think it's really great to, to educate yourself um, and also to help out. A lot of people seeking asylum you know, are torture survivors with very compelling stories and claims. 
Um, and they have a hard time integrating into life in the U.S., partially because we don't let them work <laughs> until after six months after they've filed their asylum application. So, but we also don't give them any financial benefits or housing. Um, so often asylum seekers are really struggling. Um, so I'm on the board of a new nonprofit in the D.C. metro area that we started to try and help people in that situation. So people who are going through the project, um, and it's called ASAP, ASAP. It's the Asylum Seeker Assistance, Assistance Project. Um, and so we are, we are trying to engage with these individuals uh, while they're going through the process, help them find a place to learn English if they need to. Um, some of them are coming as doctors, lawyers, engineers, help them figure out a path to, you know, actually practicing their profession or something somewhat close to it while they're here in the U.S. Um, so, and we're always looking for volunteers and mentors in various fields uh, for those individuals. So you could find out more by um, checking out our website, which is asapprojectdc.org. Uh, but there's lots of other organizations. Uh, the U.N. High Commission for Refugee um, has a wonderful website with a lot of great graphics and ways to kind of educate yourselves. And more than just listening or reading, you can actually look at who is a refugee, where are they coming from, where are they going, um, what is our country doing about it uh, compared to the rest of the world. So I think educating yourselves on, on who, what is a refugee, how does that um, differ from undocumented immigrants in general, uh, can certainly be, be helpful in raising awareness, especially because we've just seen um, some, some hostility towards uh, refugees in the current uh, political climate in recent months. Well, Lindsay, we really appreciate your insight on this topic. It's very complex, and but very important nonetheless. And thank you also for the ideas of, of what we can do to help. That's really important. You know, it's one thing to just sit here and listen to this interview and, and find it interesting, but it's it's another thing to actually have a takeaway from this and, and be able to go away and, and make a difference. So again, thank you so much. Her name is Lindsay M. Harris, and she is an assistant professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and she's been talking to us more about immigration, the immigration court system. We really appreciate her time here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue the discussion. Welcome back to the program. We just uh, we just finished speaking with Lindsay Harris, who talked to us about the immigration court system and how it can be fixed. Really interesting topic, and she gave us some great ideas on how we can help. And uh, now we want to talk to Terry South, who's got another interesting subject for us. I saw this earlier this week, and I, I found it odd. It says, in California, some inmates have the com- all the comforts of home right in their jail cells. These so-called pay-to-stay jails. Inmates <laughs> with money have the opportunity to avoid the often crowded and sometimes crime-ridden Los Angeles County Jail. The facilities, which can run $250 a night, offer such amenities as unlimited access to movies, books, and cable TV. Some facilities even allow inmates to leave during the day to work and return in the evening to serve their sentences. The Surfside community of Seal Beach is home to one of the most popular pay-to-play facilities. It says, we've had lawyers, we've had doctors, we've had teachers, we even had a Catholic priest, said the uh, police commander in that area, who wow. runs the, the jail, I guess. For 100 bucks a night, inmates at the Seal Beach jail get semi-private rooms, single shower, 
and the ability to watch TV and make phone calls whenever they want. The arrangement helps the town raise money, but critics say it's a two-tier system. Those who are wealthy are able to upgrade their facilities to stay in nicer jails than those who are poor who may have committed the same exact crime. Mm. So what do you think? You commit a crime and you can kind of toss a little bit more money in there and make it more of a pleasurable experience for you to serve your sentence. It doesn't quite seem right. I'm curious to know what these wealthier inmates are doing as far as a job is concerned when they're able to go out for the day. Yeah. Well, I would just say, I mean, they're saying they're, they're, they're lawyers, they're running businesses. It just, they've, they've committed a crime. I think now, if they're covering my parking, a hundred bucks a night in downtown LA is going to be a pretty decent stay. It says the pay to play <laughs> facilities are generally for those who commit low level nonviolent crimes. A recent study by the LA times, uh, showed that 4.5% of all pay to stay inmates committed serious crimes among them, assault and battery, that kind of stuff. So the most, mostly nonviolent, Maybe white collar ish type mm. crimes. So, so nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, violent. Maybe they stole something. You know, but they're able to, you yeah, know, toss in some money and maybe get a, a better TV cable package. Or that something. doesn't seem right to me. You know, I because I just I think of the the homeless person that is arrested for stealing something from a grocery store, and he's pretty much only stealing it so that he can go to jail and have a nice place to stay overnight. Yeah, but. They're not going to those facilities, that's for sure. I don't know. So the whole country oh, club jail concept is having a new approach here, I guess. <sighs> well, I guess if they can afford it and there are facilities for it, then I don't know. It just seems so much easier to not commit a crime and then... Oh. There's the advice we were looking for. There you go. That's what Dr. Matt would say if he were here today. Anyway, continue to send your positive energy and your positive thoughts and prayers Matt's way as he uh, gets ready for his surgery today. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be having more fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's got his big surgery today. So uh, as we, we did earlier in the program, we're encouraging everybody to tweet him to... Pray for him. Send all your positive energy and thoughts his way because he'll need them. And uh, he'll be back Monday, so don't despair. But uh, his loss is our gain because today we get to celebrate International Yoga Day. Hmm. And you want to do a downward dog. Reach up and do a mountain man pose. I, I don't know any of the terminology. Jeff's making things up again. I'm making it up. And then you want to extend your arms out and do the I once caught a fish this big pose. Oh, that's the warrior. Yes. Or oh, the warrior? Or three okay. or four. See, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. We're getting close to the truth. And uh, it's also selfie day. So maybe you could uh, snap a selfie while you're doing yoga. That might kind of defeat – that. the two don't really go together, right? Because doing yoga is all about – Not according to my Instagram feed. Relaxing. I think perfect. <laughs> really? 
Lots of people doing yoga selfies? Yes. Hmm. Absolutely. What's uh, the point of doing anything in 2017 if you're not taking a selfie of it? How many times have you taken a selfie of yourself in 2017? Well, I'm me, and so I've taken maybe two. Okay. But I'm That's talking a good about point. other you people. Are there you. are other people out there, Jeff. You are you. Uh, so – this is something – we're going to be talking about something that uh, has been on my mind a lot because I have two beautiful daughters who were just introduced to their baby brother. They were very excited to meet him and they still love him very much. But I think they're kind of starting to struggle with there being somebody else in the house that's getting a lot of the attention that they once had. And so they're kind of misbehaving a little bit. Maybe not as happy as they once seemed. And so our next guest, uh, Katie Hurley, is going to be talking to us about the seven secrets of highly happy kids. Kind of sounds almost like the uh, a variation of the seven habits of highly effective people. Now, if we could get one that's the seven habits of highly effective kids, I would buy that book. Because uh, I can't get my kids to eat their dinner or do their chores. Hmm. Can you, Terry? No. We have a whole list of things for my kid. Every day, come home, you have to do this, 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 and this before you can watch a screen of any kind every day. Dad, can I watch the iPad? No. Oh, come on. He's on the, he's on the ground crying. I'm like, dude, every day. We can't do this every day. It's going to yeah. be a long summer. You need to just get your work done. And he's like, okay. So some days he's like, okay, I'm going to take care of this and that. And then he never gets it done. And then he complains. And it's yeah. nine o'clock at night. And we're still trying to read books. I'm like, come on, man. You think get at some point, done. yeah, you think at some point it's going to sink in. It never does. No. And every night at dinner, it's a negotiation. All right, yeah, Dad, he, how many bites do I have to eat? He never eats. He looks at you and he goes, I'm going to eat one bite of this, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, eat the whole thing. Uh, Unless, of course, it's macaroni and cheese. And then he's like, you know, devours the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. See, with my kids, you you are lucky enough to find a meal that they just love. Right. So you try to make that meal for them more frequently, but then they've only been interested in it a couple of times before my, they're done. My with wife's it. tried to come on out here and help me make the entire meal. He's he, she helps him cut the vegetables. They yeah. They they do the meat. He d- prepares the entire meal. Sits down at the table and goes, "I don't like this." <laughs> like you just made it. He's like, ah, he doesn't want to eat it. So she's hoping that she can instill in him a sense of ownership. Then and right, maybe a little curiosity. Mm. We're making this. Let's actually taste it. And he won't even taste it. The superpowers thing doesn't work. Nope. The bribing doesn't even work because if they don't want to eat it, they just don't want to eat it. Whenever I go, like, you know, carrots will give you a supervision like Superman. He goes, Dad, Superman's fake. He's just a story. (laughs) Oh, come on. You're six. You've got to believe this stuff. Darn it. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't mind so much because you hear you're not supposed to force your children to eat food. that They're going to eat eventually. But the problem is my daughter will go out play in the hot sun Come back, not drink any water, not mm-hmm. eat any food, and then she'll wake up in the middle of the night and need to throw up, and she's miserable. Right. So everybody's miserable. At some point, it's like you need to force them uh, to drink water. Yeah. That's the other thing, water. My kid comes in, I'd like a glass of milk, please. I'm like, How about some water? No. <laughs> no, no, no. We weren't having a discussion here. I'm saying you're going to have you know some water now. No, I'd like some milk, please. And we get into this fight, and then you're trying to reason with a six-year-old. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And this is a good reminder for all of us, too, because kidney stones has been a 
frequent subject here on the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, if you don't want kidney stones, just drink a water. lot of water. Just drink water. You don't even. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a lot, but no. drink more water than you drink caffeinated sodas. See, I've been drinking a gallon of water a day. Wow. Right? And That's great. I, so I have a 24-ounce bottle. It's about five and a half, six bottles. Okay. And if you just well, – I've set times during the day that there's certain like uh, – well, specifically before I leave my house in the morning, before the show starts, after the show's over. Those are like milestones during the day and I just stop and I drink water. Do you, you know? know how proud Dr. Ron uh, Hager. Hager would yeah. be of you right now? Because he, you know, he talked to us about getting, you know, not just drinking all of it in one big jug, but yeah. getting up to refill it so that you're getting the exercise in there so that we're not and sitting I, to I death. Don't, I don't like carry the bottle around the house or something. It's just sitting on the counter. And there's just certain points of the day where I'm back in the kitchen at the counter and I, I drink. So yeah. it's not really that even a, it's not something I even think about. It's just, oh, yeah, it's time. And you drink some more. And by the time you're done with the day, it isn't like you're like waterlogged or you feel like it's yeah. such a burden. It's just something that happens throughout the day. Oh, we need these reminders. I need this reminder because I don't want those kidney stones. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Well, I don't know if you heard yesterday we talked about how hot it is. Oh, yeah. The southwest yep. of the country specifically. Record-breaking temperatures hitting California and Arizona and Nevada with 119 degrees in Phoenix and California's Death Valley got up to 127 yesterday. Oh. As a result, some airlines grounded flights in Phoenix because scorching air doesn't give planes the lift they need to stay in the air. There's no need to turn on the tap for hot water in some areas because the cold water is just as warm. It just the the water so uh, the pipes are hot, so all, would, everything's hot. You would think the hot air would elevate them more, you know, because isn't that what propels a, a, a hot air balloon? Yeah, just physics. No, no one knows how planes work, <laughs> though. It's um, magic. Cars have basically become ovens with wheels. A team of National Weather Service meteorologists in Sacramento baked cookies and roasted bacon by leaving them under the windshield of a 200 degree car so in on the dash of a car oh my god they, they were able to make, make cookies just letting the sun bake them through wow. the windshield so be careful out there drink some water stay out of the sun sheesh and uh, i don't know question why you live in phoenix but if you're you running do that. if you're running know. late to work then you know throw some bacon and eggs on yeah, the dashboard just cook breakfast on the yeah. way <laughs> apple uh, hired national security administration fbi secret service and military veterans to investigate and prevent the leaking of confidential product information. This is Apple that makes your phones and tablets and oh, that computers. Apple. Yes, yes. Okay. So they're hiring like Secret Service, military, NSA, FBI people to investigate product leaks. Hmm. Uh, this according to uh, some documents obtained by a website called The Outline. The security team monitors uh, factory employees, investigates leaks from Apple campus, and helps to create a culture of secrecy within the tech giant. Factory employees are screened in ways comparable to that of the TSA. So as they're probably leaving the factory, it's like, you know, they, they go through uh, pat-downs wow. and stuff. I worked at uh, UPS. They had a similar situation because, you know, people, you know, you're moving people's packages, stuff falls out, watches or whatever, yeah. and you walk out the door. So you got to protect yourself. So you have metal detectors and that kind of stuff. You put your hands out. over your head. There was some of that. Wow. The strategy was allegedly discussed in an internal presentation to uh, employees. So just the idea that you have a, a company that makes your cell phones and they're hiring former NSA and FBI people to make sure that no one leaks any of this 
detail about the cell phone before they release it. It's just a phone, and they uh, release a new a product like every two weeks anyway. It's a lot of money. Imprisoned former football star O.J. Simpson has a July 20th parole hearing that could have him released from a Nevada prison as early as August 1st. Simpson, who turned 70 on July 9th, has served more than eight years of a 9- to 33-year sentence imposed after he was found guilty in 2008 of armed robbery, kidnapping, and other charges stemming from a confrontation with two sports memorabilia dealers in a Las Vegas casino hotel in September 2007. So yeah, he could be out of jail and back on the streets. His lawyer says he'd probably live... A very quiet life. Oh, like other, no, no, other, no. Other reports have the reality TV show oh, in sure. the works ready to go. Oh, so. yeah. When you give him a sentence that's about as specific as when the cable guy is going to show up, 9 to 33 years. 9 then to 33 years. That so. guy doesn't know how to stay out of the headlines. No. He'll, so he'll be in him in some form or another. He'll be somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and finally, this is a new study here. It says, being in power actually damages your brain. Multiple researchers have found producing behavioral changes resembling the results of a traumatic brain injury. Much of the change involves a lessened ability to walk a, a mental mile in someone else's shoes. So like empathy. Hmm. Right? So Where are it, you going with this? I'm just reading this. Okay. It's a report out of the Atlantic. It All says, right. I didn't know if you had somebody his, specific in the, mind. The historian Henry Adams was being metaphorical, not medical, when he described a power or power as a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. Whoa. Right? So it says, but that's not far from where uh, Datcher Keltner, a psychology, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, ended up after years of lab and field experiments. Subjects under the influence of power he found in studies spanning two decades acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially are crucially less adept at seeing things from the other people's points of view. Keltner calls this phenomenon the power paradox, which means functioning in a position of power leeches away the, the qualities of empathy and other oriented cognition that made attaining that position possible. Wrong. So <laughs> not necessarily that, but just in, generally overall in a position of power, he, this guy found that you lose empathy over a while. And that might be because you've separated yourself from those people that you're supervising or you have authority over. So is there a distinction between power and money, or do they go together at times? It doesn't say. He just said Interesting. It's, it's, it's the idea of power. It's the idea of being a decision maker who affects other people's lives. And at some point, those people start becoming maybe they become numbers versus actual humans to you. And so as you're making these decisions, they're kind of cold and calculated rather than thinking of the human impact. So there's no empathy in your decision making. This is why Undercover Boss is one of the great shows yeah. of our modern age. Yeah, those guys yes. show up all of a sudden to the, to the place of work and they're like, I had no idea. And they're just sitting in an office in Orlando, mm -hmm. but they show up in like Denver, Colorado at a franchise and they're like, wow, this is brutal. We got to fix this because they all of a sudden the empathy comes in and they're able to make yeah. that connection again. But they're so separated – from the actual work because they're just in an office somewhere. And you see, so, and it just, it's natural. Like, it's not like a lot of these people set out to be these cold, hard, terrible oh, no, human yeah. beings. It just ends up happening over time because they've been separated right. physically and emotionally from the people that matter. You, now, if you want to apply that anywhere else in real, in our current situations, you can do that, but I don't I know. Didn't, I didn't say it. That, well, I just Those, said These it. are your words, not mine. Well, words. someone played certain drops. <laughs> I'm just saying, in this situation, he's talking about corporate America and... Yeah, you kind of separate yourself, and you don't care about the impact necessarily. You're worried about the bottom line. 
Yeah. But at some point, the company has to worry about the bottom line, too. I mean, you start hearing about layoffs and stuff, and people mm-hmm. are like, you have no heart. And it's like, well, they're also saving all these other people's jobs by not shutting the company down. Right. So, I, You know, the best episode of Undercover Boss that I remember seeing is uh, the one with Kylo Ren. Did oh, you see that the, on the SNL? Skit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like sitting in the Death Star cafeteria or something. So what do you guys think of Kylo Ren? I was in the shower with him, and he had an (laughs) eight-pack. He's like an amazing administrator. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, that's great. If you haven't seen it, just Google Kylo Ren or uh, Star Wars Undercover Boss. Hey, did you guys have a good breakfast this morning? Oatmeal and blueberries. That's good. Yeah. Cole? Less than that. Less than that. He had like a fruit roll-up or something. By the way, are you the are you the guy that's leaving these fortunes on the board? Oh, yeah. I knew it was you because it seems like I've been in here a couple of times at night and you've had some Chinese food with you. But hopefully that's not what you had for breakfast. So uh, how about this? Timothy Glass Jr. was arrested in Eureka, California for uh, resisting arrest and probation violation after allegedly shooting a man with a flare gun loaded with a shotgun shell filled with cereal. Yeah, so flare gun with a shot with the shell for the flare gun, but yes. he filled it full of cereal. Gosh, I hope it wasn't Captain Crunch. It doesn't that say. would tear him up well, inside. Yeah. Read the rest of the story. We'll discuss which will be the best implementation of cereal in this case. But go on. So this is according to the Eureka Police Department. On June 7th, uh, the police department— you think they always go, Eureka, police department? Sorry. (laughs) I I definitely would. That would be the best part about living in Eureka. But you know you do that for a day and the locals just look at you moron. That was a fun board game, too. Did you ever play Eureka? I don't think so. Pretty decent TV show, too. Yes, it was. Mm. Go on. So uh, the Eureka Poli- Eureka Police Department Fire and City Ambulance responded to a report of shots fired, and it was first reported that an adult man had sustained a single gunshot wound to his hand. Glass was arrested by the victim and did not want to press – oh, uh, he was arrested and the victim did not want to press charges. So, uh, yeah. What, what cereal would be the best as – I guess like I think, a, a flare gun with a shotgun shell. What well, ammunition would be the best cereal? The most lethal way. would be Captain Crunch for right, sure. Because right. that tears up the roof of your mouth. I can only imagine what it would do to your insides. Old stale Lucky Charms would probably be my bet because those marshmallows get hard as rocks. Okay, okay. You know, the least lethal has got to be Fruity Pebbles. What about like uh, Grape Nuts? Oh, gosh. I mean, that little, doesn't really count like cereal like, anyway. Would it be like little pellets? Little shrapnel. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those giant frosted mini wheats. You can only fit one in the shotgun shell anyway, but it's Ooh, just like giant. a bazooka. Well, no, they're, they're, the, they're just shredded wheat. Or, yeah. yeah the mini wheat, yeah. mini wheats. Yeah, so the shredded, <laughs> it's like this single large, yeah, my dad used to eat those. But I think those would just generally explode, wouldn't they? Yeah, probably not lethal. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Pops. Yeah? You know... Any sort of round that'd like cereal machine, would work. That'd be like the machine gun of... Yeah. Hmm. Pops or tricks or any of those sort of Cocoa Puffs kind of round. You know, I never remember eating a bowl of Pops and thinking, I've got to have these. But that's what the commercials always told you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, you lie. Yeah. These are, these are without taste whatsoever. Well, one thing's for sure. Uh, that wound with that cereal bullet was not a, a part of his complete breakfast. That's for sure. Boo. <laughs> you didn't like that one, huh? 
Anyway, we wish him well, and uh, please don't put cereal in shotgun shells and then put those in flare guns. Just the advice you need from the Matt Thompson It's just dangerous. Today. Plus, there are starving people in the world that would have loved to have had that bowl of Cap'n Crunch or grape nuts or whatever it may have been. It's true. Anyway, we're going to take a break. And, uh, you know, cereal is one thing that makes my kids happy. Maybe that's something that our next guest is going to mention in our interview with uh, Katie Hurley on the seven secrets of highly happy kids. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Seven secrets of highly happy kids. You know, these days, kids are running from class to class, from one activity to the next. Think about it. These kids today, they're more organized, structured. They've got more going on than you had till you were when you were 30 years old. They're getting a lot done. But, uh, you know, there's very little unstructured playtime. Often kids' development comes before their happiness, and we wanted to be... Uh, focusing on our children and, and, and give you some ideas for how you can uh, help your kids to be happier. Our guest today is Katie Hurley, author of the article, uh, Seven Secrets of Highly Happy Kids for the Huffington Post. She joins us now from Los Angeles. Uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Good to have you. And you have a website called practicalkatie.com, right? I sure do. Yep, that's right. It's a great uh, source just for parenting. You're a psychotherapist, an LCSW. You've been working with kids. And, and this article, I, I, really, um, I really enjoy it. Do you think, just as a pro, Katie, do you think that we're, we're over-programming the kids? We're doing too much today? I do. I really do. I see it in my office when the kids become so highly stressed that they need help and they end up on my couch and I see it out in my own community. I have two young kids and, you know, so we do a few things here and there, but I'm very underscheduled by design and I'm a bit of a mystery to the people around me, I think, yeah. some of the time. You'll, I mean, and it, you, once you're with your friends and your neighbors and they're all saying, yeah, well, our kids are playing Super League and they're in choir and um, you start feeling like, man, I'm not pushing my kids hard enough but really you're saying maybe that's healthy yeah i mean and that is part of the struggle is that parents really do feel an inordinate amount of pressure right now to get to prepare their kids to be everything and do everything we're like trying to raise this generation of super kids you know and so when everybody's talking about it and everybody's involved in everything all the time it's really hard to be the one person who stands up and says I'm not going to do that anymore. And I've had these conversations with parents. I, my book, The Happy Kid Handbook, came out in October, and I go and I speak to groups of parents at schools and community organizations, and that's always the big question at the end of the presentation is, but how do we stop? If the town is doing it and all the people are doing it and, and all these things are available, how do we make it stop? And I, I keep saying it just takes one person to start a revolution, but you have to be willing to do it. So true. And, and not buy into the the you know the the talk with your rest of your friends because I mean, really unhealthy is unhealthy it, it's you can see it in your kid's face when it's just too much it's true i mean these kids they're exhausted they're, they're not eating properly because they're eating in the car on the way to baseball practice mm-hmm. you know, they're not sleeping enough because 
baseball practices running into their sleep time three nights a week. I mean, it's, it's just this generation of children who are zombies. They're tired and they're hungry and they're not getting enough time to play by themselves and they're not getting enough time to just play with whoever's in the neighborhood. And, you know, we're allowing it to continue because we think it's going to get them into Harvard, but it's probably not. Yeah. See, that's it. Huh? That, that's why the zombie apocalypse movies are so big. <laughs> Because everyone relates to it. When I was a kid, you didn't relate to a zombie. No, not at all. <laughs> That's so sad, but true. Hey, now, but this is different than the way we used to do it. I mean, but, and what do you see are the biggest differences? Well, people keep asking me what was different 30 years ago. And, you know, first of all, all of this stuff wasn't available 30 years ago. I mean, kids really started youth sports around fourth grade Mm -hmm. in the 80s and the 70s and 80s. And now childhood has sort of become big business. You know, you drive around any town in America and two-year-olds are playing soccer, which if you step back and look at it, the absurdity of it is right there in front of you. you No one scores a goal. It's just a big mound of flesh. Two-year-olds don't need soccer. You know, they they might have fun with a ball in the park with their right. mom or dad, you know, but yeah. they don't need organized soccer. So, you know, part of it is just that so much is available. And then part of it is the landscape of fear for parents has changed. I mean, the world is feels more competitive than it used to, whether or not that's true. I mean, I, I keep saying to parents, every generation has had their stress. You know, you just... You were a kid when your parents were raising you, so you don't know what their stress That's was. That's true. You, know, you, you can't remember that. You didn't feel it in the same way. So, you know, but our generation now says, well, it's, it's so hard to get into college. It's so hard to get into college. But if you watch now what's happening with Harvard and the Graduate School of Education there that's doing a ton of research on, you know, empathy and kindness, you know, they're really turning around and saying, well, what colleges should be looking for in the future are not these super kids who can do it all and get a community service project off the ground, but, <laughs> you know, good kids, good kids who are just kind and empathic and, you know, hard workers, but also just kids who really have a passion and know what they want in life. Oh, that could be my kid. And, and you know, what else is funny is how many of these people today are also saying there's other ways to get education than a university. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. even that whole game could be changing in the next 20 years or even the personalized learning world where these kids are going to start more customizing their learning. Absolutely. I mean, I found myself just the other day out of curiosity looking into a, a school program out here that's very individualized learning. And, you know, kids go and they show up for one-to-one instruction mm-hmm. for a couple hours a day, and, and that's their learning from 6th to 12th grade. And, you know, more and more people are looking into alternatives because – Academics have also changed. You know, we've pushed down academics so much in this country that you know, kindergartners are are p- practically second graders at this point, and it's the stress of that alone is just monumental for children and for their families because you know parents are coming home with enormous homework packets for kindergartners, which is ridiculous because <laughs> you know now here I am going around the country telling the parents. You need to let your kids play. You need to let them make up their own games and have fun and problem solve on their own and do their own thing. And they're like, but I have an hour of homework every day that I have to do with them. That is so. unbelievable. In kindergarten. In kindergarten. So. I mean, do you remember what you were doing in kindergarten? I'm pretty sure I was, you know, throwing mud at my brother in yeah. the backyard. Yeah. First grade, I was playing kissing tag. Yeah. And I was horrible at it. They kept catching me. Um, but it's, oh, Wow. I mean, again, so this is going to impact the happiness of children. You wrote an article in Huffington Post called Seven Secrets of Happy Children. Why don't you start running us through some of those secrets? What 
what do happier children have that maybe uh, the less happy or just and, and the parents may not even know it. They they might think their kids are happy, but as you run down the list, I think a lot of us will get a big eye opener. Right. I don't have the article right in front of me. So no, I've got it. I'll, I'll pro- yeah, I will. I'll cue you through. The, um, but you brought up one already. Is just they eat on time. Right. They eat on a you know a schedule. When, when yeah, on a schedule. I mean, when ba- when we have babies, doctors always recommend at some point, like, well, you know, they'll fall into a pattern, and that sort of becomes their schedule, and that sort of makes good sense. And then you know, when they're toddlers, you know, make sure they have snacks because they can't make it long enough between meals. And then all of a sudden they get to be grade schoolers and we start throwing them totally off track. And they're one night they're having dinner at five and the next night it's eight. And, you know, one day they're having breakfast at this hour and then it's three hours later the next. And that's really not good for people in general. I mean, right. it's, it's not good for kids at all, but it's not even good for adults. You know, when you talk to nutritionists, they say, try to stick to a schedule. You know, don't oversleep by four hours on Saturday to try to catch up because you really do throw yourself off, Mm. you know, when you change your whole schedule. So, you know, making sure that they stay somewhat on schedule. Of course, there are going to be occasions where you're at some family dinner and things go late, so they eat a little later. But, you know, try to have a normative schedule in there so that kids know, their bodies know they're going to be fed at a certain time and they're, you know, and they keep, you keep refueling them. Yeah, it's, you're making me feel guilty. Last night, my son's birthday we had uh, a birthday party at 7.30 where we ate and consumed huge Mexican food and meal. And then at 8.15, we had a 45-minute schedule for the party. And at 8.15, we quickly then went and took him to his basketball practice where he ran around with a side ache. And, and I'm thinking, what are we doing to our children? Who, by, the, and by the way, he's 11 now. What 11-year-old is starting a basketball practice at 8.15 at night? Isn't that awful, though? My seven-year-old son has basketball practice at 6 to 7 on Friday nights. So uh, oh, yeah. Week I want Perfect. To That's right. Ruin a marriage. Yes. <laughs> that, like, yeah, we don't need parents married anymore. Yeah. Let's just ruin that. But, again, the reason that is is because the basketball team at the high school, they need, this, they need the gym. Yeah. So let's just have the 11-year-olds practice later. But – but it's a competitive league again, and it's right. you're thinking, yeah, but it'll be good for him because someday he'll go pro. Um, exactly. Yeah. So we so, so, the NBA. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that may not happen. Um, the uh, the one key is they're eating healthy and on schedule and on time, and they're number two, they're getting the consistent sleep you were talking about. If you've ever had a teenager, you know what inconsistent sleep looks like. Right. Right. And, you know, sleep deprivation among children and adolescents is a huge problem right now in America. Huge. Oh, yeah. The kids are shaving off. I think they, they said it's about like one and a quarter hours per night Ugh. of sleep. And when you go into sleep debt, you know, it only takes two nights to go into sleep debt. When you go into sleep debt, you're, I mean, I, you know, you've been, you're a parent, so you've been, yeah. certainly you've been sleep deprived. Oh, yeah, still it, am. You know, when you go into that sleep debt, it's like you can't, I mean, there have been times where I've gotten into my car and said, you know what, I should not be driving my car right now to uh-huh. get out of my car because it's really that bad. It's that significant that your brain just doesn't function properly. And then we send the kid to school on right. test day. On test day and, and even not on test days. And then they get, you know, they get in trouble for either misbehaving because they're so tired that they start acting out or for spacing out mm-hmm. and not keeping up with their assignments. And so we, it's really a setup for failure all over the place. Uh, in fact, and then the, the, my teens come home. And they go take a nap on the couch. Right. Which is telling us something. It is. 
is. And, you know, it's interesting because I think it's up in Seattle where a few schools are trying the later schedule for teens and mm-hmm. starting school later. And some of the parents are really fighting it and saying, you know, no, we want them out the door by 7 a.m. But they're finding that the kids are doing better when they start at 9 because teens do naturally go to bed a little later. That's their circadian rhythm. So when we start school a little later, that allows them sufficient time to sleep. Heaven forbid. It's just, again, we get this idea that the schedule ends up leading us instead of the child and the, and the need right. of the child. Exactly. Interesting. Katie, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back and, and continue the list of seven, seven things that happy children, um, seven secrets of highly happy kids. Uh, more with Katie Hurley and uh, her great work for, on her website, practicalkatie.com. Stick with us, folks, giving you the insight of what helps create healthy, happy children. Fun stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Appreciate uh, Ben bringing in his own music today. Yeah, it's it's this or, or Barney. So, was oh, this Barney? No, no, this isn't Barney. This but isn't that's, Barney. that's like this is Karen O and the kids. All is love. Good stuff. Hey, uh, today we're talking about um, happy kids, raising healthy, highly happy kids. Seven Secrets, and our guest is Katie, Tur- uh, Katie Hurley from um, the website practicalkatie.com. She wrote an article that was in the Huffington Post called The Seven Secrets of Highly Happy Children, and she's been walking us through some of those. One is that they, you know, they get sleep, they eat on time, they're eating healthy on a schedule. But another one, Katie, is uh, they're, they're playing with, in, with, without instruction. They're just able to go have some unstructured play. Right, and that's a really big one and often overlooked right now. I mean, I, the single biggest difference between now and then, you know, in my own childhood is kids don't play anymore. Right. Kids, kids don't climb trees as much as they used to. You know, you can, you can go all day without seeing a kid in a tree, and in 1980, <laughs> kids were all over trees. You yeah. Know, they were just, I mean, I spent my childhood in Connecticut wandering the woods with my brother and my best friend making up games and you know, stuff. Yeah. Kids really don't, from toddlers on up, they don't do that anymore. And what parents forget is that when you put kids in these activities all the time, there's always someone telling them what to do and how to do it. You know, even the little toddler art classes, they're being told how to do it. And, you know, with toddlers, they really should just be sticking their hands in the finger paint and figuring it out on their own and, you know, splattering it and making a mess and Mm touching it and feeling it and smelling it and, you know, understanding it from their senses. And we've really lost sight of that. And then we stick older kids in class after class after class after school so that their weeks are packed and they don't have any time to just tap into dramatic play and imaginative play, mm. you know. And then when they do have that time, we and God bless Legos, you know, I love oh, Legos. Yeah. 
But yeah. even Legos are so structured now. You know, you follow a book of instructions that's like four zillion pages right. long. Yeah. You know? No, and, and <laughs> even something perfect, and then it's like, well, that's done. So I guess that's over. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you remember because you could have two or three or four toys as a child that you could play for hours with. Oh yeah, forever. And even if they weren't the same size, like I had a horse. And a leg that was bigger than my Lego guy by far. And it all worked. Didn't matter. And the horse could, sure, the horse could drive on top of the car. Sure. It's a horse. Yeah. And my brother and I used to, we used to mingle his Matchbox cars with my Strawberry Shortcake doll. Oh, for sure. And that was like weeks of play. (laughs) It's true. And now um, I also just see these kids then when they're done and they have a free time, they, they don't go to unstructured play. What they do is they go to... One of their games on their phone, uh, yeah, and now it's again structured, designed for you to do what they want you to do. It's true, it's true, and I, you know, I try not to sound anti-technology because there's a right. part of me that loves technology. You know, my husband's a musician and, and he travels frequently, and you know, by the by God's grace of FaceTime, do we all stay in touch when he's on the road? But it's you know, kids are way too plugged in today. And oh. It's just, it's become a coping mechanism. You know, they're upset, you give them the phone. They're, you know, worried, you give them the phone. They're bored, you give them the phone. It's become like the automatic answer to any potential problem. And then parents call me and they say, you know, my kid drives me bananas. He just, he can't be bored for like a minute. And I say to them, but when has he had the opportunity to be bored? I mean, I love being bored, but being bored is a skill. You, mm-hmm. know, you have to learn right. it. You have to practice it. Well, in fact, and have you ever, you've, I'm sure you've heard of the game Minecraft. Yes. So, but, but then this is another weird thing because Minecraft is a, a brilliant game of unstructured play where you can go in and right. create and it's kind of like Legos in a way. But um, the funny thing is, is I don't think parents have a clue what their kids are building. Because so so I mean what I've just found is I try to go in and see what my children are building, and you're amazed. Yeah, it's incredible what they're doing. Right, it's true. But but so imagine if you just gave them. I mean, and that's great, and that has a place. Right. And there are teachers who bring Minecraft into the classroom and use it, you know, as a teaching lesson, which is wonderful. I mean, bridging technology and education, great. But when that's the only thing, it's not so great. And then imagine what happens if you just give them a giant bin of random Legos in primary (laughs) colors, and then then what can they build? Now build me something. Right. Well, and and parents, I think we just we could we can we can initiate it by thinking out of the box a little bit more just just add a, be different do something different with your kids one night yeah what yeah. about uh, expression um you know cuz back in the day we didn't necessarily dare say what we were thinking it seems like the kids today are allowed to express a little bit more than we used to i think they are a little bit i think the thing is, but like my parents were not afraid of temper tantrums. Were they probably annoyed by them? Yeah, I would sure. guess. You know, yeah. but they weren't like afraid of them. This generation of parents were so afraid for our kids to have any sort of a meltdown. It's we'll go to any lengths to avoid it. So, yeah, that's true. And that's what's not good. It's just not healthy because you know I always say to parents, but. You know, a temper tantrum, really all it is, is I'm super frustrated and I don't know how to say it, but I know this is going to work. You know, yeah. I know this is going to get your time. And that's what kids do. You know, they, until they learn how to cope with stuff, that's how it starts out, you know, and then they learn. You know, we teach them and they learn to cope and they get better skills, but it takes time. And I think, you know, we spend so much time trying to mute the negative emotions 
and pretend that everything's fine, but really what happens is kids just stuff their feelings down and it snowballs and it just gets worse the next time it comes out. That's so true. We are, yeah, we try to incubate, I guess, our children. Yeah. From emotion, from pain, even from choice. Another one of your points is uh, the healthiest kids get to make choices in their lives. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I mean, you know, I always thought of my mom as like, there were four kids in my family. You know, she had to have it down to a science. You know, uh-huh. my dad would travel. So she definitely had to have a system, and she had a system. So I try to think back, like, did I get to make a lot of choices? I remember when she'd make me wear these outfits I didn't want to wear and things <laughs> like that. But, but, you know, but today we're so – we're all about control. We're trying to figure out how to get them from A to B, and, you know, A being infancy and B being Stanford. And <laughs> we're so – focused on that, that we make so many choices for them without ever stopping to think, like, well, what would you want to do? I mean, I had a mom come up to me after the soccer season ended, and she's like, you know, I really just want my kid to keep playing soccer. Now, this was the one, every team has one kid who picks daisies, you know, that's yeah, right. natural. And, it, and I said, well, you know, if he seemed to have fun, then, you know, go for it. And she said, yeah, but, you know, he's not very good. And I said, well, it doesn't matter. He's seven, you know, he's seven years old. Who cares? And she seemed worried. And I said, well, what does he like to do? And she said, well, Legos. And I said, well, so why don't you just let him play Legos then? And she said, because he has to do something, you know. And I said, but why? He loves Legos. Why can't he do Legos? I said, if you put your hand in the air and say, I got a boy that loves Legos and not soccer, you will find another mother who has that boy. That is so true. You know, that's we're afraid to speak up and be different from, you know, what's considered the norm. And somehow today the norm is athletic at age seven. And yeah. that's, that doesn't make any sense. Well, no, I just had a room full of um, parents whose Kids are all taking uh, music lessons, and yeah. and it's funny how many times just your child. It's funny that your husband is a musician, but um, how many times the parents, when their kid says, "I think I just want to be a musician," right. <laughs> this there's this there's this sick feeling in the parent's stomach, like <laughs> no, 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 no. He tells the story when he announced that uh, he he gave up all his sports, and he was uh, he actually was pretty athletic. So his dad would coach him in baseball, and you know had high hopes for him. And at age eleven, he declared that he was giving up all sports to protect his hands. <laughs> and, and <he laughs> dad, I'm a musician. Like the sheer look of shock on his father's <laughs> face when he. No. But it's so true. And how many times then do you see as a counselor the child come back later as a teen or, you know, a young adult where they're saying, um, I, I've always felt this weird pressure to be something I'm not because my parents wouldn't let me just be me. I wanted yeah. to just stay home and do whatever, but they wouldn't let me be me. It happens all the time. I have children sit on my couch and say, I just want to be a kid. Yeah. Oh, and- wow. I can't, you know, and I can't communicate that to the parents. I can say it over and over again, but they don't. Right now, they're not able to hear it because they're so busy being busy. I mean, that's a large part of the problem is this culture of busy that this generation created. You know, it's a badge of honor to be busy. And I really, even though I have weeks when I'm really busy, I mean, I see clients, I wrote, you know, I'm promoting my book, I'm yeah. freelance writing. I, there are weeks when I am genuinely super busy, but I make a huge effort to not answer the question, how's your week with busy? Because I don't, you know, that's not what I'm most proud of. Being busy isn't a source of pride for me. And sometimes it's a source of exhaustion, you oh, know, yeah. but we, this is a generation of people who think that doing it all is, is some sort of badge of honor. And mm. really, it's impacting our children negatively. And, and really, the healthy, happy kid is, is like you're saying, 
they're being heard. Um, yeah. they're, 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 they have a parent that's attuned and listening. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I get some flack sometimes for that because, you know, I, I believe we do need to listen to what our children are saying. You know, we treat them like they're little robots and we can program them for success. And, you know, they have feelings and they get exhausted sometimes, even when they haven't had a busy week. You know, they're growing and growing is tiring and learning is tiring and they have enough on their plates. And I think, you know, we need to become a generation of people who respects children and says, you know, we want them to respect us, but we also need to respect them and listen when they have needs and, and empathize with them and, you know, sit down and say with them, you know what? I remember that. That's really hard when the kids won't sit with you at lunch. I know that feeling, and that really stinks. You know, because when we get into the habit of that, of just empathizing with our kids and making them feel like just normalizing the things right. that are hard, then our kids feel better about themselves and about the world around them, and they are empowered to get out there and try again. Well, and that's all you're doing in therapy. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it always amazes me when a client comes in and you seem to be able to get so much more out of the child. Right. And, and all you're really doing is taking everything they're saying and kind of not, not, not fully believing it, but hearing it. Right. You're just exactly. you're taking all the clues that they're giving. And the parents probably could actually have so many more clues than you ever could. But we just don't tune in. It's true. And I, and I say that to, because they'll say because moms will say to me, I can't believe she said that to you. And I'll say, well, you know, but I'm not her mom, so there's no right. pressure. You know, I'm, I'm going, she knows that I'm going to empathize with her no matter what she says. And I say that to kids in my office all the time where I say, look, I care about you no matter what. There's nothing you can tell me that's going to make me be disappointed in you or not like you or not want to help you. You know, yeah. you can tell me anything. And that's, you know, which brings us to unconditional love. You know, parenting is hard, and sometimes kids make choices that are disappointing, you know, and kids mess up. They do, and they're going to, and they will at every single stage. You know, you know you've got teenagers. It never goes yeah, away. That, right. You know, they make mistakes. Some of them are huge. Some of them are small. Like, it's our job to love them anyway, yeah. you know, and to not let those mistakes define who we think they are as individuals. And, and you can do that and still correct them. Absolutely. Mm. Mm-hmm. How, just give us a quick way to do that. So if I've, if my child's done something that is disappointing, that's against our values, that is harmful or dangerous, or uh, w- what do I say to make sure they know I still love them and correct them? Well, you know, I always encourage parents, and it feels backwards to do it this way, but I always encourage parents to remind your kid that you love them first. Yeah, exactly. So instead of, you know, the instinct is to jump, in, jump into consequence mode. You know, you've done something wrong, you're going to get a huge consequence. But for me, what I always encourage parents to do is to say, you know what, Liam, I, you made a huge mistake today, but I really love you, and I care about you, and I'm going to help you through this. And we're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about how we're going to fix it, but I want you to know that I just I really love you, and I really care about you, and I know you can do better, so let's just figure out how to do better. And then you move into yeah. you know, picking apart the fix, what, right. what went wrong. You I know, love because that. The kids are genuinely afraid when they've done things wrong. They know when they're yeah, right. up. You know, they're sitting there in guilt, either hoping they don't get caught or knowing that they did get caught, and now my mom's not going to love me anymore. Uh-huh. And, you know, certainly you don't want them to feel that way. Yeah, you don't want love to be in question, do you? No. The love's, yeah. the love's stable it's constant, you know, the mood, mom might be frustrated. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. And that's another thing, too, that I always say to parents is, 
you tell you know tell your kids how you feel i mean there's no law that you can't tell your kids how you feel you know when i'm having a tough day i'll say to, say to my kids like you know what i'm i'm super frustrated right now and i'm feeling impatient so let me just take a minute. I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. Yeah. I'm going to take five minutes to just stare out the window, and then I'll get back to you. Yeah. And that's okay. It's good for kids to see that parents have bad moments, bad days, bad feelings, you know, because that also normalizes just the range of emotions that humans experience. So, so true. Well, Katie, I think it's a great it's a great list, and uh, you're a great resource. Again, practicalkatie.com is the website. Thanks again, Katie Hurley, for being with us. Great stuff. Thanks so much for having me. We've learned so much. Um, parents, I mean, it's these are your kids. I know, we know you love them. There's, you, there's just no end to the amount of skills we could all be getting. But uh, pay attention. The kids are telling you whether you're paying attention or not. The information's there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Wrap up the second hour of the show. Stick with us, folks. Helping you find the good in the world. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, that interview was just super, and uh, which is interesting because now Terry is going to speak with us wow. about Boo. a super volcano. What was wrong with that segue? That was perfect. It was super. It was rough. Okay. It was rough. But yes, a super volcano. Now, if you live in the West, as we do, mm-hmm. you might have heard that the Yellowstone National Park region is sitting on top of a super volcano. That if it does go off, many believe... It will end life as we know it. Oh, my. So just a positive thought this morning on the Matt Townsend Show. Um, so it says Yellowstone supervolcano has been hit by a series of earthquakes with more than 400 recorded since June 12th. Ooh. They call it an earthquake swarm. The latest Sheesh. was recorded Monday, June 19th with a magnitude 3 earthquake striking 8.6 miles northeast of West Yellowstone, Montana. The swarm began last week on June 15th, saw a magnitude 4.5 earthquake take place in Yellowstone National Park. The epicenter of the shock was located in Yellowstone, in the the actual park, eight miles north, northeast of the town of West Yellowstone. The earthquake was reportedly felt uh, all over the place. The earthquake was the largest to have hit Yellowstone since 2014 with a magnitude 4.8. So, they're like, why are we having all these earthquakes all of a sudden? They don't know, but they're looking at the uh, seismograph, all that sort of data yeah. that's coming up. But uh, they're finding that uh, what they have 464 events have been recorded since uh, as of June 19th. 464 events have been recorded. Most of these range in the magnitude of zero to one, with five less than zero indicating they occurred at depths ranging from about one or zero to about nine miles. They go, this is the highest number of earthquakes at Yellowstone within a single week in the past five years, but is fewer than weekly counts during similar earthquake swarms in 2002, 4, 8, and 10. My goodness. So there's lots of little earthquakes happening, and people are kind of like, what's going on? Not that there's going to be a super volcanic reaction and all yeah. eruption and all this but just you know it usually they found these swarms around fracking in like oklahoma you know a place that isn't known for earthquakes they have a lot of earthquakes in oklahoma now once they've started fracking yeah some people are doubting the whole cause and effect there other people are like come on man you're you're pumping water into the ground to try to force the 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 fuel and and you you know you're causing problems there seems to be some cause and effect in oklahoma but nothing's really happening around uh, Yellowstone in that way. Yeah. No, no one's fracking around Yellowstone, 
but they do have a super volcano. So that then it turns into – what was the movie uh, – who was a the disaster core? Volcano? Tom, Tommy no, Lee Jones? So like, Day After Tomorrow was the one where everything oh, froze, Jake right? Oh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid. Is that the one where everything, that everything one. froze? Yeah. Then there was a one it was a it was a San Andreas? No, that was with that The That was rock. The Rock. There was another one that came out just before that and it dealt with that Deep super... Impact? No. It's The Core. Is it, I'm pretty sure. Is it The Aaron Core? Aaron Eckhart? Yeah, it's a Never bunch of natural it. disasters. Same thing as Day After Tomorrow, but... There's one where a guy is sitting in a RV in Yellowstone. He has like a little podcast conspiracy podcast oh that was 2012 there you go 2012 that was Woody you're referring to Woody Harrelson there we go see there's all these movies and they all deal with this type of stuff and that's (laughs) what this comes from is there oh earthquakes we're gonna have this movie happen so oh send Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith into the volcano and give it a virus there you go that'll solve it all or send Bruce Willis and Owen Wilson to blow it up anyway Fun stuff here on the Matt Townsend Show that you're not going to hear anywhere else. We'll take a break, and we'll continue the fun when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay because he's away getting some much-needed help uh, in the form of a surgery today. We won't give any of the gruesome details, but please just know that uh, any positive energy, good thoughts, prayers, tweets, anything you can send his way, that would cheer him up. I know it would. And I'm sure Netflix is going to play a huge part in his healing and uh, cheering up process. But we wish him well, and he'll be back soon. Don't worry. And don't worry about us not sparing or sparing the gruesome details, because he will come back and give you all the information oh, yeah. you didn't want to know. Yes. Now, the only thing that could make his surgery worse is if it was performed in the lobby, just like my, my baby boy was born in the lobby. But he's okay, so don't worry about that either. Anyway, uh, we all just need to take a breather, calm down, because today is International Yoga Day. Yoga itself is a physical, mental, and spiritual practice that originated in India about 6,000 years ago. Throughout the ages, yoga evolved and developed, along the way becoming a philosophy in itself. Then in the 19th century, yoga came to attention of the West which had begun to take a general interest in Eastern culture and philosophy. Soon after, Swami Vivekananda, the first Hindu teacher to actively advocate and explain yoga to a Western audience, toured Europe and the United States. Yeah, this song doesn't work as much as the one that we played earlier. No. (laughs) But it does make me want to extend my limbs and knock somebody senseless. Wow. Like in the video game. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just – I've got the video game in mind. Every time we would play that video game, by the way, Street Fighter 2, uh, my mom would be upset whenever we would fight Chun-Li. Yeah. Why are you hitting a girl? Right. <laughs> Why are you fighting a giant green monster either? I'd always respond it's... because she's throwing <laughs> yeah. knives at me. I mean, yeah. you know, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the better question is why are we beating up this old car? Well, you know how like those in-between levels where you oh, try to, to get extra points, you beat up, you destroy this car? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just an Super odd Nint- game. Yeah. Super Nintendo is one of the greatest entertainment systems out there. I, it's not really out there anymore. but I beat up mine pretty well too, so yeah, yeah. we enjoyed that. 
Oh, my goodness. Today is also selfie day. Selfies have probably existed as long as handheld cameras have been a thing. Human vanity is so utterly profound that if we're given the opportunity to do something self-aggrandizing, we do. This habit, in our defense, doesn't seem to be strictly human in nature. Given access to a camera and little time to figure it out, monkeys will start snapping selfies like no one's business. In 2014, BBC officially declared a selfie day, which amusingly heralded a sudden decline in selfies. <laughs> Interestingly, there was a similar drop after the Oxford English Dictionary added selfie to its pages. It does seem that way. Whenever there's a fad that comes around and it just explodes, then it kind of declines in popularity because right. people want to do the cool thing, which also in their mind, seems to be the thing that nobody else is doing. When we started talking about fidget spinners, that was the downfall of fidget spinners. Wow. I would be surprised if... We didn't catch that on the uptick of popularity. It was definitely on the downslope. And we're like, hey, did you hear about this new thing? And that's when it's done. We talk about Pokemon Go, and now it's just in the toilets. So People play it, but not like they did before. Yeah. Yep. I remember going outside late at night and seeing random teenagers walking around the neighborhood. My park isn't infested with people. There's just people playing Frisbee golf like normal. That's it. Just the Frisbee golfers. <laughs> wow. That's much better than staring at our phones walking around a park. Now, I, I heard a, a news report several weeks ago that the selfies have caused an increase in plastic surgery. Really? Because people have these high-def cameras and they're taking these photos of themselves and multiple, multi, you know, hundreds of photos. And you can see things that possibly you don't like about your face or whatever. And you can go get those fixed. And some, some people do. That. Some <laughs> people only... just don't look good in photos. Some people Whereas, don't look good in selfies because you never look good right. taking a picture of yourself. Whereas before we, we weren't taking these pictures. We didn't, everyone didn't have access to a really good camera. And so you'd see photographs. You're like, oh, yeah, that's me. And then you move on. Well, now it's like every day people are taking pictures of themselves. And they're, they're uh, starting to point out imperfections, and they'd like to get those things fixed, and so plastic surgery's up across the nation. You can't. can only look so good when you can only get the camera an arm's length right. away from you. Yeah. The further away the camera, the better you'll look. So. Can't we just get to a point where we're okay having horrible pictures of ourselves out there? No, no it must be perfect. I have a horrible picture of myself out, yes, you do. Uh, out there. I look like I woke up. Or anything. I look like I hadn't shaved. <laughs> I look like... Uh, Had maybe, you have shaved in that picture? I don't remember. Okay. But it I, looks like I had just come out of a torturing session yeah. and I threw on a smile. It's by the copy machine. I look over and I go, oh did he not shave? Gosh. See, that's horrible. Did he, did he even try that day? What's he doing? But I leave it up there yeah. because I'm not so vain. But are you so vain that we couldn't tweet it out? You know, I, I'm at a point in my life mm. where I'm caring less and less. <laughs> Clearly. When I go home and I eat half a bag of Cheetos. Right. Mm. Yeah. Today's also the first day of summer. Okay, that's it. <laughs> you, you, look at, you look at that picture of me, it looks like I've eaten half a bag of Cheetos. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, you're correct. It is first the first day, of, day summer? of summer. Yoga day and selfie day took a backseat to a Dep- holiday that people actually care about. Depending on where you are, it's either yesterday or today. It was giving you the, you know, the longest, the most amount of daylight, yeah. which I find annoying. At 9 o'clock, it shouldn't be – I shouldn't look out there like, is the sun going down? What are we doing today? And then all of a sudden within you know the next half hour, it's dark. But 
So you like to sit in the dark, well, hidden I, in the shadows. It's more of my kids need to go to bed. Okay. And yeah, they're looking out like, but the sun's up. Why are we going to bed? This is you know? the day where as a kid you get to spend all day doing things. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I want to share a, a bit of tragic Hollywood news. But first, I want to hear what Terry South has to say about what's going on around the rest of the country. An armed Russian fighter jet flew within five feet of a U.S. plane in a provocative maneuver over the Baltic Sea, it's been reported. The Russian jet approached the American reconnaissance plane rapidly, flew erratically, according to officials. Quoted by Fox News, CBS says the fighter approached the wingtip of the larger aircraft before passing underneath it and reappearing on the opposite wing. The U.S. considers the incident an unsafe intercept. Officials told Fox that the Russian jet was armed with air-to-air missiles. This is becoming more common as our two nations are uh, having a frosty relationship, to be a way to put it, when it comes to Syria and how we're all, you know, flying against each other. There was a, a red sort of red line, hotline between the two, uh, uh, whoever's, you know, commanding both air forces over there in Syria. They've stopped talking. Mm. The whole point was so that the airplanes didn't run into each other, but... No, no discussion anymore because of, you know, <laughs> di- diplomacy and stuff. So we'll watch how that continues to go. Um, moving on, at least nine passengers and one crew member were injured by turbulence on a United Airlines flight between Panama City and Houston on Tuesday. The airline said paramedics met the aircraft, provided medical care, and the initial reports are that nine customers and one crew member were transported to the hospital for evaluation. One airline said... Or the airline said in a statement, uh, there have been no reports of the condition as to those people at the hospital. You ever had turbulence that bad? No, thank goodness. I mean, if you have people like showing up, like ambulance and stuff, people were bouncing around inside the cabin. I take it. I mean, how else do you get? I mean, you get hurt by the rapid drop, and so you hit your head or something. But yeah, I've never had turbulence that bad. There's no. been turbulence, but just like a little drop, no big deal. But, but it sounds like they'll be okay. Maybe, I don't know. This is oh, no man. reports from the hospital. And so. United cannot catch a break. Again, another oh, United flight. It's crazy. In Alaska, increasingly aggressive killer whales are stalking fishing boats in order to steal humans' hard-earned halibut catches, some leading, leading to high-speed pursuits across the Bering Strait. Uh, let's see, it's gotten completely out of control, one fisherman told the Anchorage Daily News. The orcas will wait all day for a fisher to accumulate a, a catch of halibut, but then deftly rob them blind. They will relentlessly stalk individual fishing boats, sometimes forcing them back into port. The problem is getting worse, too. While fishermen can bring in up to 30,000 pounds of halibut in a day, that means little when a pot of six-ton killer whales decides to help themselves to the buffet. One fisherman recalled losing 12,000 pounds of halibut to a pod... That was, uh, let's see, that was on top of the 4,000 gallons of fuel the guy spent trying to outrun the killer whales. Oh, my goodness. That are chasing down his boat. You know, I hijacked a fishing boat one time, but it was just for the halibut. Just for the halibut. Finally, on Tuesday... (laughs) Cole loved that show. On Tuesday, Barbie's counterpart, Ken, debuted 15 new looks. The Mattel doll is now available in three body types, slim, broad, and original. And seven Ooh, different. Ooh, do skin- they have extra crispy as well? No. And it says and seven different skin tones. He sports an array of hairstyles, including cornrows, and the unfortunate trendy man bun. He now wears skinny ties, tank tops, and cactus pattern tees. Ken's evolution follows Barbie's last year. Mattel debuted three new Barbie body shapes. Ten of the new Ken dolls uh, looks are immediately available for purchase, and others will arrive later. But yeah, so skinny, broad, 
or original. I wonder if any of this will come up in the new Toy Story movie. Because Michael Keaton would be very happy about this news. Would he? Because he voiced Ken. Nice. In Toy Story 3. Great casting, by the way. Cornrows? Cornrows Corn and Row man Ken. buns. Yeah, Cornrow Ken and man buns. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they need to... I, I kind of understand why they do that. Yeah. I mean, the body type especially, but... Well, a lot yeah. of it comes down to, I mean, uh, there's there's all there's a array of dolls mm-hmm. that are on the market. I read a, a marketing story about Disney and their princesses, and how one toy company had the contract, and a day later they didn't, and it's like a billion dollar industry, yeah. and they own it with the Disney dolls. Well, now this other company has that contract. They went and built an entire factory just for the Disney dolls, and it's like $3 billion and growing, Sheesh. and they have this sort of circulating uh, audience where there's always a new flock of you know three- to six-year-olds. And even if they age out, there's always more three to six year olds coming right, down the right. down the road, so they're able to have this customer base, and uh, they need to reflect all the kids, not just you know one group of kids. So there's different skin tones, different hair, different. And then with the the princesses, you have the whole variety of princesses. You're, you're are you getting into Disney princesses at all with your girls? They are really into Tinkerbell right now, right? There's, so they have even, a couple even, of even with Tinkerbell, there's like. Seven or eight different oh, yeah. Tinkerbell characters, right? Yeah. So, and it's all in an approach to kind of get everybody and have a doll for you if you you know, if yeah. you want to have a selection of what you want to pick from. So, Did you ever play with a Ken doll, though? No. So that aren't was, those – What a, about a Ken action figure? Whoa. No, mine were all G.I. Joes. Mm-hmm. They were all armed to, the t- armed to the teeth and ready to go. But so. they have G.I. Joe dolls that are the same size as the Ken dolls, right? Well, they did. Back in the day, mine were the yeah. action figures, the little ones that you know that were the ones with the cartoon that were cool. <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with calling anything that I played with ever a, a doll. doll. Yeah, we yeah, have, you we can't have do fundamental that. truths here. They were action figures. We would take the the little army men. Mm. And I think there were some of them were GI Joes or uh, yeah, GI yeah. Joes. And we'd take them. Uh, we'd take a line from the top of the stair banister. Oh yeah. And tie off the other end to a basket, mm. and they would just hang or they would glide down this line and land in the basket. See, I so had so much fun. I had a one of the action figures is a martial arts guy named Quick Kick. Quick Kick. And he had some nunchucks. Right. I don't so you, remember this. You one. could put them in both of his hands, so he could like you could hook him across the rope or the string yeah. or whatever, and we'd do that. We just he would like always swing in. You put his feet up. You put the bad guy at the bottom. He'd come in and knock them all down. <laughs> like save the day, you know. You just... See, we didn't need fidget spinners. No, I still have most of those. Now that I come to think of it, huh? As an adult, should you fix your broken toys? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I, I have a collection of some of my more. I don't have any toys as an adult my, to fix. I have a small collection of toys from when I was a kid. I have. I think I have most of my action figures. The problem is they have a rubber band that holds them all together, and those rubber bands are falling apart. Okay. Now I've looked in some fan forums for such for these action figures and found the the washer that you would buy to fix. It works perfectly. You stretch them between the hooks and all their arms and legs suck in and everything's right back to as if they're a brand new toy. Should I invest in those washers to fix my G.I. Joe action figures? Nerd alert! Are you still 
playing with them, or are they just more of a collection? It's more of a collection, but the problem mm. is you kind of feel defeated when you pull up your toy to look at it and like it falls apart in your hands because the rubber band is just deteriorated. It, there's nothing there. It's disintegrated. There's nothing left of the rubber band. And my son has seen these, and he's like, ooh, can I play with those? I'm like, no. See, but shouldn't – because you talked about people getting plastic surgery yes. after seeing their own selfies. Yeah. Are you of the mindset that people should age naturally, or do you think we should keep ourselves tuned up and beautiful? You need, you need to do what you need to do to be happy. Okay. If you can't so be happy would, with what you see, then fix it. That would be my answer to your question. So I should then. fix my toys. Yeah. See, with the only thing I collect that are I don't collect toys, but I kind of I used to collect DVDs and Blu-rays. I don't really anymore, mostly because streaming is so much easier. Right. But also because you know my kids scratch up they all do. of our video games and DVDs, and then they're worthless. I agree with you. Kids ruin everything. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> um, but with toys, yeah. as long as you tell people that you're fixing your toys yeah. so that your kids can play with, even if you don't let them in real no, life. No, I'm not really. It has nothing to do with my kids. It's my toys. You could tell people that that's your excuse, okay. and it would be a little bit more acceptable. Go watch. Go rewatch the scene with Will Ferrell and his son in the Lego movie when he's trying right. to explain to him that these Legos that he's playing with as an adult are not toys. They're a complex inter interlocking brick system Yes, that they bought at the toy store, but, you know, and there's an age limit on there, but that's just a suggestion just that they have to put yes. on there. Right. <laughs> Makes total sense. Wow, that's that's an interesting thought. Yeah, Let's I just think, say in my home I've brought this up and a yeah. certain other adult that I'm you know, living with doesn't quite share the vision of fixing my toys. But so if you're still here it, but, uh, yeah. at BYU Radio 10, 15, 20 years from now, Oof. are we going to see you coming in with Botox and – Oh, no. You know, I won't fix myself. Lifts and tucks and – No. Okay. I'll be what I am. If you can't deal with that, tough. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that's more like the Terry South that we know. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to speaking, or we're going to be speaking with uh, Becky Bailey, who's going to be talking to us about managing our emotional mayhem. We never have any mayhem here on the Matt Townsend Show, right? Never. Okay. Well, she's going to tell us how we can be equipped to handle that in case it does come up. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll tackle that subject here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when it comes right down to it, uh, we we need to parent our children, right? And they're going to throw fits. They're going to have their issues when they don't get what they want. But how how do you handle it, and uh, and how do you teach your kids a healthy way to manage their emotions? It's one thing to just, I mean, I guess, put them in timeout, but... Maybe the best model of emotional management is going to be the parent and joining us today um, to help us kind of understand this emotional roller coaster that our kids are going through and how we can best coach them through it is Dr. Becky Bailey, who's the author of the book Emotional uh, Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. Dr. Becky Bailey, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Oh, thank you, Matt. Wonderful to be here. Great to have you. This, uh, I mean, kids, you know, they throw fits, right? But so do parents. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I, I was just up with my grandchildren, and I think I threw about four more fits than they did. <laughs> uh, I was throwing fits at them throwing fits. Yeah. It was, it was just a fit circus up there. Um, and, and they're I like, Grandma, that- control yourself. Yes. I love it. Didn't you write a book? Did you write a book? Yep. (laughs) Mom, Grandma, get this. You wrote the book on this. How do we we not react to their reactivity? And that's that's the most profound question you will ask. And most – the answer or the problem is most of us don't live a a, a regulated life. We have these old beliefs that have been handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down – from generation to generation where people had didn't have the ability to regulate their own emotions, and we were just passing it on. So let me give you an example. Yeah. Okay, so here's how we kind of sabotage our life. Usually, I'm going to call this the five se- steps to self-sabotaging yourself. <laughs> okay, great. All right, so the first thing is we tend to blame people for our emotions. You know, look what you made me do, this traffic guy. This guy can't even drive a car. I mean, these kids are driving me nuts. Look how you made your mother feel. You're driving your grandmother nuts. So we tend to blame our emotions on others, and we teach children to do that. Mm. You know, we teach children by saying, look how you made your sister feel, which puts your one child in charge of the other's inner state. So how do you grow up if someone else is driving you nuts, if someone else is making you angry, if someone else is making you sad? How do you regulate your own sadness and anger? Well, you don't. So the next step we do is we tend to blame it on others, and then we demand that the others change. Yes. You know, if you know what's good for you, you best get in bed now. (laughs) Or even in the office, you know, the boss is just an idiot. I don't know. You know, my coworkers, they're killing me. They're driving me nuts. I can't stand to go to work. Here's what they need to do, 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 do. So we act it out, demand the world go our way. And then when the world doesn't go our way, we get these sensations of, oh, my gosh, I mean, I can't tolerate this anymore. So we start medicating ourselves. Yeah. And we do this. I mean, this is a huge addiction. I mean, whether it's – I'm a personally a workaholic. I don't know about you. Matt, Not me. Nope. Not no me. Good. I'm a sit-a-holic. I just sit and, all day. And we have sugar-holics, but we have 23.5 million Americans – addicted to drug and alcohol. And if you just add sugar and caffeine to that, I think it takes us all down. So then what happens is we medicate those through some kind of addiction. It could be playing golf. Then we bury those feelings that we had into some kind of story. You know, I can't believe what's happening to America. Look what's going on. Look at the politicians, you know. And then we stay stuck in a problem because it starts with blaming others. So we go around this whole cycle. I blame I demand you change. I medicate my sensations with, you know, a couple martinis. I buried in a story because you're an idiot, and then I stay stuck in the problem and I complain through oh, my life. That is, that is, that's insanity 101 right there. Right, and and I don't know about you, but I tend to catch myself in that loop like little hamster yeah, totally. almost every day. Yeah. So, so that I guess part of it is seeing that you're in the pattern, right? And so if I'm blaming my kids, demanding their change, they don't. I go medicate myself, get busy, ignore them, which just causes more mayhem. Right. The problem may not be my kids at all. Right. And then you bear it in a story like I'm not a good parent. Right. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm ruining my kids or, or these my kids, kids aren't good kids. And yeah, these kids are like they're my in-laws. Right. 
Yeah, we, we they're blame not some. true. Those stories are just made up stories because we couldn't deal with the sensations in our body that we call feelings. Mm. And then we start believing the story instead of actually letting the feelings come to our awareness and going, okay, boy, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, both these kids are going off the deep end at the same time. And let me just take a breath. Let me just calm down. I can do this as opposed to they need to stop. We try to control children to manage our upset. And that's the loop I got in with my grandkids. You know, if they would just calm down, then I could get calm. Mm-hmm. But they went off at the same time. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't. You, you, one of you have to stop <laughs> right now. And, and I didn't take that pause and and say, they're not making me crazy, but they're certainly triggering something inside me, yeah. this, this sensation, this feeling. So I think that's our biggest problem, that we as adults need to kind of step up our game, for lack of a better word. And here's an interesting thing, Matt. They yeah. did research, uh, a lot of people, a lot of universities, et cetera, et cetera, and they found out that how adults treat adults, has more impact on how children learn to manage their feelings than how we treat the child. Hmm. So they're just watching us. They're watching us in our own house. And we got, what, almost 60% of our marriages, if you do get married, you know, ends in divorce. Uh, they're watching us not handle these things so well. Hmm. Um, so they're just following our model. Debates. I yeah. mean, they're just looking at a mess right now. That's interesting. So really, it's 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 how we're living our lives as parents in front of our children, and how we manage our own emotional ups and downs that is that's teaching the children. Exactly. I mean, just take. I'll give you a simple story. Let's say you're riding in the car. Uh, you're riding in the car, and you've got a bunch of kids in the back, you know, and some person cuts you off in traffic. You know, what's your what's your immediate response? You know, it usually is judgment, criticism. Uh, we stupid drivers, I don't know this, and they shouldn't get a drive. You know, we start blaming and judging and, you know, a little mouth. Um, So then you get to the grocery store, okay? You get to the grocery store, and you're telling your kids now, you know, when we go to that little aisle now, you're not going to get any candy, you know? So I brought you an orange. I brought you whatever. You're just a perfect parent. You've got everything. You've explained it to them before. You've rehearsed what's going to happen. And you get right there to check out, and they're going, I want a candy. And then you say, no, you know, we talked about this. And then from their point of view, you just cut them off in traffic. Right. So they're going to go, I hate you. And you're, you know, (laughs) the same thing you just did 20 minutes ago. But uh, that's what they're watching. And then we and then we're surprised. Like, what? Where did you learn this? Right. You're watching too much TV. And that child care center or that school, public school and I'm going to have to homeschool you now. <laughs> oh, boy, that'll be great. Let's <laughs> let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Becky Bailey about her book, Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. We'll take a break, come back, continue the, the journey and the discussion, figure out what we can be doing then as parents to manage the regulation and do, do a better job. Stick with us, uh, learning all we can about parenting in the uh, moment of emotional breakdown. Interesting stuff. Stick with us. Welcome 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You ever have your kids break down and then you realize, well, I've been breaking down all morning, too. What is the deal? The contagion effect of our emotional uh, craziness and mayhem. Well, who better to walk us through it than Dr. Becky Bailey, author of the book Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. And she's here today to teach us uh, what are some things we can be doing as a parent to make sure we're teaching self-regulation. You know, by the way, a skill that these children will be able to use forever. Um, And what if we could just instill some of the tools early on? Dr. Becky Bailey, thanks for waiting and being back with us. Oh, um, certainly my pleasure. So let's get to some solutions. Yeah, what do we do? Okay, so first let's change our cycle. Okay, so the first, instead of blaming others for our upset, we're going to go, oh, no, I'm triggered. Mm. You know, they didn't cause me to feel anger, but they stepped on a landmine that I was carrying inside me, that's for sure. So they triggered my upset. So once I say it's mine, then I'm going to take, I'm going to calm. So step two is calm. I'm going to take a deep breath and really slow it down. (sighs) Really slow it down. Then I'm going to feel, instead of going on to the story that's in my head, I can't believe these kids are doing this. I can't believe this. I never should have got married. Instead of the story in your head, you're going to pull out a feeling. Okay, I'm feeling what? what, And sometimes we don't even know what we're feeling, so we're going to take a guess at it. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling anxious. Then once we can pull that feeling out, Instead of going with the story that's rambling in our head, which causes us thoughts that get us more upset, we're going to pull that feeling out, and then we're going to go, okay, I'm feeling angry. Okay, so I wanted, so what's the message of anger? What's the message of anxious? See, anxious says you just need more information. Anger says you need to change. So then you're going to choose something. You're going to choose a better perspective. Maybe that car that just cut me off in traffic you know, is really late for work, or they've got a sick child in the back seat, or who knows? We don't know why they're so late. Right and why they cut us off. They were just probably singing to a song, just like we do, and cut people off. So we give them the benefit of doubt, and then we can solve our problems. So we go, instead of I blame, I'm triggered. Instead of I act out or try to get the world to go my way, I calm down. Instead of uh, medicating, I try to find what I'm feeling. And instead of burying it in a story, I choose a better story that's going to calm me down. And instead of staying stuck in the problem, we solve it. So Mm. that's kind of the the cycle we're going to go. But that doesn't give us the day-to-day. What am I going to do in this moment? Yeah. But, I mean, I guess guess the key is if if I could just do one of those steps, it would change a lot. If I could just simply not blame them but recognize I'm triggered and own it in front of them. Oh, my gosh, yes. That changes a lot. That changes, I mean, the discussion from there on out. That changes the whole ball game. You're going to tell children that, no, I didn't make you mad because you can't spend the night at your friend's house, but I did trigger your anger. And what do we do in our family when our anger is triggered? First thing we do is we all take a breath. That's what our family does. You've seen me do it in the car. You've seen me do it with your dad. You've seen me do it, you know, Mm. you've seen me do it. So if we can do that first thing, the world changes. That's great. The world changes because we're losing the war on drugs because we don't know what we're feeling and we're trying to medicate. We're, and if you don't learn how to own your own upset, you never can learn empathy. So, again, we're going to hit our friends or, in this case, bomb our neighbors. So this is a huge, huge, huge shift. Hmm. And, so and something share. like breathing. Oh, it's just breathing, Becky. 
but it's but what an what a seriously powerful tool. I think I think eighty percent of our anxieties could be eliminated with better breathing. And um, I think I read that somewhere, and I thought, holy cow, if we could just teach our kids to just take a breath. Right, and the only way we're going to do it is if we take ours. Right, model it. And and then we're going to respond to children differently. So this is really key, too, because usually if you listen to people, you don't hear a whole lot of feeling words in a house. Right. You know, you'll hear, what did I just tell you, or this isn't that big of a deal, there's no need to cry. You know, I told you we'd go to McDonald's later. You know, we're talking about stuff. And all you have to do is I call it the D. N A D describe their body or their face. Your body's telling me or your face is telling me. N name the feeling. Your face is telling me you seem angry. And then A acknowledge what they wanted in the highest possible um, view. So you seem angry. You were hoping you wanted to go to McDonald's right now. It's so hard. Breathe with me. Hmm. You can handle this. I mean, we don't do that. I mean, that sounds so simple. So we're telling them what the face looks like so they can see it on other people and learn empathy. Right. We're telling them the name of it, which is called anger, anxious, disappointed. And we're telling them what that wanted you to do. Oh, you you seem frustrated. You wanted the uh, puzzle to go right into the hole. Yeah. You forgot to turn it around and see which way it would fit. I mean, but we're naming it and then telling the, what does that feeling say to us? See, I grew up knowing that sad equals go to the refrigerator and eat. (laughs) I didn't know that sad equals go get comfort from those that love you. You know, I grew up meaning anxious meant work harder instead of get more information. So our equations of what these messages are embedded in these feelings got confused with us because we were told what to feel. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, you, look what you've look what you've made me do. So we're doing it instead of saying, "Oh, you seem," and I didn't say you are angry. I said you seem angry. You wanted, and I'm telling you, if anyone listening to this show can do these three things: take a pause and breathe for yourself, and then when you see your child upset in whatever it is, you might go, "You seem disappointed. You were hoping," and then figure out what they were hoping for. Yeah. You seem angry. You wanted. Then put that in, and then tell them at the end, "Breathe with me. You can handle this." That's great, because then it's all on them. You're just saying it's this is something fixable. This is not because the emotion makes us feel like it's real, and it's yeah. like and it's essential and it's critical and it's fight or flight. Right now, it's survival, and yet in reality, you're just teaching them just kind of breathe through it, pause through it, let's think through it, recognize the emotion, describe the feeling, acknowledge yeah, it. Let's, let's just kind of name it and tame it and let it go, so that we don't carry it around for thirty years. Or 40 years, and then we're scared to be angry because we think we're going to, you know, become a terrorist in a bank or something. That's right. You know, because we're so afraid of our own feelings. But no one labeled them from us. And this isn't because our parents didn't know what they're doing. It's just we didn't think they were that important. Right. And now we know different. So it's not like – and the only reason I – my kids push my buttons as my I push my parents' buttons, you know, and those buttons are just wounds from our own childhood. We didn't know what to do. Right. This exactly, and this and is been handed learning. Down for, you know, ten thousand years. So it's not like we need to blame anybody. Right. We just need to get in the game. Yeah, and 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 have hope that a little learning can go a really long way. It does. It goes a tremendous long way. And again, we tend to say you seem angry, and we stop. Mm-hmm. So. 
you know, if, if you've got a problem, the, the difference between a, to go from a problem to a solution, you have to go across this bridge called feelings. Yeah. Now, women tend to get up on top of that bridge and invite their friends, get a bottle of wine, <laughs> you know, and talk about it. You know, well, in 1985, you know, she said this. You know, so they stay on top of the bridge, don't get off the other side. Men, they don't even get on the bridge. They mm-hmm. go, you know, the wife might come home and say, you know, I had a hard day. And he goes, well, get a new job. Get in line. So, yeah. So we all we need to do is go, you seem frustrated. You wanted. You seem sad. You were hoping. So my friend is leaving instead of going, well, it's okay, and, you know, you can text her. Just go, you seem sad. Hmm. You were hoping she'd be here forever and stay right next door. But we can handle this. Breathe. Breathe. You can do this. And then you add, you know what? I bet we can actually text her or have an online chat. Yeah. And solve it before right. you go across the bridge. Get across the bridge and then, and then, then offer it. some solutions. Yeah. Dr. Becky Bailey, great stuff. Appreciate it. Um, Thanks for teaching us. Again, the book is Managing Emotional Mayhem, The Five Steps for Self-Regulation. And you can find out more about Becky's work uh, at the website ConsciousDiscipline.com. ConsciousDiscipline.com. Thanks, Becky. Appreciate it. Oh, Matt, thank you so much for all you do. You bet. You too. Keep up the great work and keep teaching. I hope we're all learning, folks. We've got to learn this stuff. Really, one of the principles she taught is a great start, right? But listen to this again. Go download the podcast. Listen to it over and over and practice it. Right there, we got more tools in a 15, 20-minute interview from Becky Bailey than than you normally get at any time. So stick with us. Interesting stuff. Speaking of tools, we'll be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Oh, they're going to hate that segue. Uh, Great, guys. Uh, Find out what's going on on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. The most fun 10 minutes you'll ever have is coming up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We had to play this song, and I'm going to have uh, Jerem Jordan and Jason Shepard explain why we're listening to this song. How are you guys doing? Well, we'll try to get them here. In this- oh, hey, Jeffrey. Hey, you can hey hear there. me. So you probably didn't hear that song that we came in with. No. No. Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, we have another clip that uh, Terry South wanted us to play as we came into the segment. Do you have that one, Cole? Right there, we got more tools in a 15, 20-minute interview from Becky Bailey than than you normally get at any time. So stick with us. Interesting stuff. Speaking of tools, we'll be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Oh, they're going to hate that segue. <laughs> do you remember that? I do remember that. That was an amazing day, a great and terrible day. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, if we're having this conversation on Sunday... It's a very different convo. <laughs> okay, so... As opposed to a weekday. The song that you guys missed was Randy Newman, I Love L.A. We were just literally... A, there was a Randy Newman reference in our pre-show meeting like 20 minutes ago. I am not kidding you. This is not a coincidence. This, is, this, this, is, this conversation is meant to be. Was it in relation to the Los Angeles Dodgers? No, it was in relation oh. to the most distinct singing voices... Oh my gosh! Oh but, yeah. Yes, uh, we, we're very. Who doesn't know the song "I Love L.A." from Randy Newman? 
Well, if you live in L.A., you have to know it just for living in L.A. alone. But also, anytime the Dodgers win, they yeah. play that song. Yeah, which they've won five in a row. Correct. Uh, yes, that is correct. They've won 12 of their last 13. As long as Cody Bellinger keeps hitting homers. Geez. Oh, my goodness. And Look Corey, out, Aaron Judge. Corey, Corey Seager, Seager, who hit three. He's Corey hit, Seager. He's hit 10 home runs in 10 games. Corey Seager, the uh, lesser of the Seager brothers. Sure. Um, so he, <laughs> Kyle had a walk-off last night for my Mariners. Oh, way to sneak it in. I lived in Seattle, so I, I, could, I could go for some of that. Corey's better. I know. Um, Corey Seager... When the bases were loaded last night, hit it to the track and almost hit his fourth home run of the game. That was pretty spectacular, too. So basically he— Scooter Jeanette's like, not good enough. Hey, let's not bring that up. That was against my Cardinals, okay? Scooter Jeanette's not going to hit four home runs in the next two months. (laughs) After doing that in one game against my team. It doesn't matter. History etched. With the Dodgers winning all these games and them, you know, setting all these records, like Cody Bellinger is the mm-hmm. fastest uh, rookie to get to X number of home runs in a season. Yes, they will still lose in the early rounds of the postseason. Really? Is that what your question was? They made it? No, no, no. My no. question is, you know, why is it that we come up with all of these these statistics that seem like a bit of a stretch? What is the most ridiculous statistic that you've ever heard? Like, why is that even a thing? Well, that's that's the age we live in right now. Is there there is a statistical there is a a statistic for just about everything. We we live in a statistical world, especially in the sports world. Like, it has all gone that direction. It's all about the analytics. Yeah, I, I heard one the other night where it was Kershaw did not have a great night, but his team still won the game, and. They said, "Oh, he's the the first pitcher to uh, give up the first four home to runs." Throw left-handed against a right-handed batter with a shoestring untied. Exactly, something, something as ridiculous as that. Four home runs and still get double-digit strikeouts, and yeah, it's I don't I don't understand it. There is a there you can you can justify anything with a stat. Like there is a stat to justify any position on any topic. Seriously, especially in baseball. So what are your favorite statistics? I'm not a stats guy. I like wins and losses. Yeah. That's my favorite statistic. Wins and losses, batting average, home runs. But not Wait, like... How, how the team performs with runners in scoring position. War. Just kidding. So nothing like... When you say home runs, you don't mean like... The, the most home runs to come from a player that was on the DL and then came back in the month of July... No, I'm talking yeah. about like just how many home runs they have. Like the the big stat, especially in baseball right now, is is the WAR. It's the wins above replacement. Essentially, it's how many wins do you lose? Or with that guy, like for Mike Trout, he has the highest wins above replacement. Like his when he's not there, the team is like three wins. Uh, if they have somebody else playing that position, it's like three wins less. With him not there, is Which he is still on the Angels? It's hard to understand. Yeah, right? it's very but like winning's the number one stat. Yes. So how do you relate to the winning? Hmm. As opposed to the means to the end. So batting uh, average, OPS, on base percentage, whatever. On your show today, are you going to be talking either about stats, uh, the Dodgers, or Randy Newman? We will have a stat of the day, yeah. Uh, but that may be the only thing out of those three that you mentioned that gets referenced. Come up with something about Randy Newman. Just come up with some random statistic about Randy Newman. 
Just throw that in there. We only, yeah. For we only, only you, so that when we say it, you're like, they're thinking of me right now. Exactly. If it was an hour and one minute, we would totally do it. Why can't it be about me for once? <laughs> Silence. Isn't that what, here's the thing. Why don't you listen to the show today is and your see show that? if we mention Randy Newman? <laughs> okay. Well, what is coming up on your show other than the stat of the day and how you're not going to talk about Randy Newman? What game has the greatest impact of the... Big five games, we call them the Furious Five, on BYU's football schedule. LSU, Utah, Wisconsin, Boise State, Mississippi State. Which Mm. of those games will have the greatest impact on the season? We're also going to have in studio one of the biggest personalities, not just on the football team, but in BYU athletics. And that is Johnny Linehan, BYU's punter. He's going to be in Studio B with us today. It's going to be awesome. Plus the latest on Eric Mika. Tomorrow's the NBA draft. Will he be drafted? We'll play a little What's the Chance and how much money did one BYU baseball signee uh, get paid to not come to BYU and go pro? We'll tell you. Ooh. And, you know, just to clarify, and I think we've talked about this before, this is, this is a different Mika than the one that sings, I could be brown, I could be blue, yeah. I could be... Okay. Well, how does I'm not exactly again? sure. How does that go again? I could be violet sky, I could be happy. I, I started oh, I got too, there. I started wow. too Wow. I started. That, yes. You know Congratulations. Maybe we will mention for that, Randy Newman. I'm, we're just going to have some <laughs> random Randy Newman drop at some point in the there show There you go. It will make no sense to anybody else except the three of us. I had I had one of those terrifying moments just then, you know, like when you're in church and somebody <laughs> doesn't have the accompaniment and so they start way too low. Yeah, uh, I yes. started way yeah. too high there. So yeah. that's fine. Hey, that's a common mistake. <laughs> falsetto, though, being able to hit those notes—that is an accomplishment. You More should like be proud of that. True setto. Yes, yes, we'll go with that. That's so um, awkward. That's <laughs> Did you know today is National Selfie Day? It is. Yes, it is. It's also International Yoga Day. So, what are you celebrating more? Um, I am celebrating that uh, I'm probably going to go to In-N-Out Burger after the show. Oh, very exciting! Yeah. Anyway, that's all about myself, so that's in line with Selfie Day. I hope you guys have a great show, and uh, we'll talk again tomorrow because Dr. Matt is still out with his surgery. Could happen at any moment today. TMI. Well, good luck. (laughs) All right. Knock them dead, you guys. We'll talk to you later. See you, too. Thanks. (sighs) Man. I went for it, started too high. Ended just right. And it just in time is probably the better way to go. Yes, well, uh, we have – I teased a bit of tragic Hollywood news and uh, I was going to save it till tomorrow, but I'll share it now. The versatile and chameleon-like actor Daniel Day-Lewis has announced that he is quitting acting. This is horrible news. I mean, this is the man that gave us that tremendous speech of, if you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake, I drink your milkshake. (laughs) What are we going to do? This guy is the only actor to ever win three Best Actor Oscars. The only person to ever do that. He's not the only person to win three Oscars, but he's the only person to win three Best Actor Oscars. You know what? I I think he's kind of had one foot out the door for many, many years. So maybe he'll be back. Maybe if the right director approaches him, maybe they can get him back. Anyway, 
Daniel Day-Lewis, don't do this to us. You were President Lincoln, for Pete's sake. People said that you were a better President Lincoln than President Lincoln. Maybe even better than the Vampire Hunter version. (laughs) Well, that's for sure. That's for sure. As you know, we like to end each, uh, each show with our hero story of the day. As a Georgia correctional officer lay unconscious on the ground, six inmates surrounded him. Then one reached toward the officer's belt and grabbed, not his gun, but his cell phone. As the inmate called 911, the others removed the officer's bulletproof vest so they could perform CPR. It wasn't about who was in jail and who wasn't, one of the inmates tells WXIA. It was about a man going down and we had to help him. Polk County authorities say the officer was supervising a work detail at a cemetery last Monday in 76-degree heat with 100% humidity when he told the inmates he wasn't feeling well and soon after collapsed. My guys were thinking the worst on their way over there, Polk County Sheriff Johnny Motes tells WSB Radio. When they got there, all the inmates were there with the officer. All were accounted for. They took care of him. An inmate says the officer uh, at first appeared as though he wasn't breathing, though he regained consciousness about a minute later with breaths coming really heavy and real fast. The officer then received medical attention and is now doing fine. To thank the inmates who really stepped up in a time of crisis, the sheriff's office provided them with a free pizza lunch. The officer's family provided dessert. Man, that is like, uh, that's unlike anything you've heard before. Doesn't matter if you're behind bars or if you're out of bars, you can make a difference. You can step in at the right time. And to get help from inmates of all places is just an amazing thing. Well, you're our hero of the story, your hero of the day, inmates. And uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back tomorrow, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show.